Okay, so good morning everybody and welcome to the 65th meeting of the Economy Committee. Um, some members will be attending this morning's meeting via Starleaf and our witnesses will be briefing us today via Starleaf. The meeting will be broadcast live when open to the public and a recording will be made available on the committee's web pages on the Assembly website. Just to remind members to mute their tablet devices when they aren't speaking. Um, so moving on, item number one is apologies, and we have apologies from Mervyn. I don't think we have any others, Peter. No, no others so far, Chair. Okay, thank you. So item number two, then, there is draft minutes at um, page five of your pack from the meeting on the 2nd of June. Are members content that those are an accurate reflection of the meeting? Content. Thank you. And then at page 12 of your pack, there is a draft record of decisions. Um taken by correspondence, so are members content with those? Brilliant. Thank you. So item number three then, Chair's business. There is correspondence from the Executive Office Committee at page 15 regarding our concurrent meeting on the 16th, which is next week. Um, the Clerk advises that the Assembly Chamber is available for use. The Committee for the Executive Office will moderate the meeting and will send out the meeting pack on Friday to all members via SharePoint. Numbers are limited for members wishing to attend the concurrent meeting in person. The interim head of civil service will brief uh, members at the concurrent meeting and Paul Grocott from DFE will also be part of the briefing team. So if uh, members could just let the clerk know if they wish to attend that meeting in person. And um, the committee will also have our usual meeting at 10 a.m. on oh, geez, the 16th. Couldn't avoid it. There was just so much to do. So the concurrent meeting is at two p.m. next Thursday. Or sorry, next Wednesday. Next Let's Wednesday. not confuse things. <laughs> okay. So um, moving on then to item number four, which is our briefing from Belfast Met and Hospitality and Tourism Skills Network, um, Tourism and Hospitality Hub. So there is a clerk's memo at page eighteen of your packs. There is a briefing paper from. Hospitality and Tourism Skills Network at page 21 and a copy of the Tourism Recovery Action Plan at page 27. So if uh, Tommy has the witnesses in um, spotlight for us, so if I welcome to the meeting Louise Ward-Hunter, who is Principal and Chief Executive of Belfast Met, Fiona Dempsey, who is Curriculum Head at Belfast Met, Roshi McKee, who is Project Director of Hospitality and Tourism Skills Network, and Kieran O'Neill, who is manager of Bishop Gates Hotel and a HATS member and a Hotels Federation board member. So if I hand over to yourselves to make an opening statement and then we'll bring members in for questions after that. Um, thank you very much. I'm sorry, uh, uh, Chair. There seems to be an odd thing that you can see. I, you're, you're not seeing me, you're seeing, you're seeing a bit of paperwork. Here's my hand. Sorry about that. I don't know why I'm on reverse. So, um, uh, but Chair, you know what I look like anyway, and I'll, I'll crack on, Louise Ward-Hunter here. If I may, can I just do five minutes introducing and then pass over to um, Roisin or Kieran? That's great, thank you. Thank you. I do apologise. This is most peculiar. I don't know how to turn reverse my, my screen. Uh, and, and there you can, the you can see I've got, I've got a pet ID there. Um, be de developing, uh, great to be with you all today, Chair, on developing a highly skilled and motivated workforce has to be at the core of our economic re recovery and and you will all be clearly aware of the importance of and the contribution that hospitality and tourism hub uh, are, are are seeking to to make the fe sector 
provides high quality uh, uh, learner education and, and training. And indeed, you may very well even have seen the uh, the recent FE campaign, which is about further education becoming a first choice for learners of all ages and, and, and backgrounds. And that campaign is, is really a reminder that um, that FE as a sector provides the skills, knowledge and learning to create parity of pathways to career success. And vitally, our industry in hospitality and tourism is one of those important pathways. A brief reminder as to the development of the curricular hubs. Um, they focus across all the different colleges on, on different occupational areas and they are about supporting the priority skills and growth sectors of employment. And the curriculum hubs, the concept aims to ensure that the curriculum uh, developed is high quality and it's consistent and current and, and responsive. And it really is about making best practice in terms of curriculum common practice. But it's about being tailored to the needs of each individual industry and, uh, and the requirements for each uh, field. So in recognition of the importance of the hospitality and tourism industry to the economy and following, of course, engagement with industry stakeholders, uh, Department uh, for the Economy designated a hub with a specific uh, focus on this key area of both and, and Belfast met following a competitive process was designated as a college and that was back in December 2019. And we collaborate with the other five colleges in taking forward a bespoke smart action plan, which includes specific areas, uh, objectives and areas such as um, trying to make sure that our, our responsive curriculum development is future-proofed and facilitates progression opportunities. And it's about engaging with employers so that we can promote the key skills growth area. So we provide uh, within the curriculum hub at Belfast, now we provide a secretariat to the sector partnership group and uh, for hospitality and tourism. And, and that is, is for the, the, um, the department sector partnership, which um, has been very supportive and has indeed endorsed the revised standardized curriculum that's currently being delivered at level two, two, five, right the way across the entire FE sector. And through our six further education colleges working with employers, there's there's real solid evidence of the benefits of this collaboration. And that's been typified by the Let's Do Business initiative, which has been about highlighting to local business the wide range of areas in which FE colleges can provide practical help. And that's ultimately about providing and delivering business benefits. So we know obviously that the Tourism Recovery Action Plan Phase 2, which was launched just at the end of May, is bringing forward further proposed actions to build on the support which the Northern Ireland Executive has, has, has provided to date. And the hub in the FA sector is about trying to support that, um, the, the response to the, the, the impact of, of COVID-19. A few quick examples for the benefit of the committee um, that the Hospitality and Tourism Hubs have been at. One's a curriculum review of all full of part-time programmes to incorporate the sorts of skills development that have been identified by the sector. I can enumerate those um, if we had more time, but they're really what's required post-lockdown. Everything from digital skills, customer care skills, uh, right the way through to entrepreneurship. We've, we've conducted a review of learner progression pathways with interventions taken where needed to allow for that whole seamless pathway from level two to level five for all learners with clear entry points to industry at each stage. And we have uh, the, we've, we've uh, looked at the design and development of a bespoke 
ILM level three program, which is specific, and that's the really important bit. It's actually specific and tailored to the hospitality. Oh, Louise, we've lost Louise. Oh no, Louise, you're. We've lost sound from you. I'm not sure if you've maybe knocked off your mic. Okay. Move to Roshin. Does one of the others want to maybe come in where Louise has left off? She's dropped out there now. I'm happy to go for Hots unless there's anything else from Belfast Med. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy members, if you want, I can I can finish off where, um, where Louise can. Yes, that's, that would be <laughs> grand, Fiona. Thank you. Yes. Um, okay, so as Louise said, we um, developed a bespoke ILM um, working with the Hats Network um, to support the industry. And the uptake of that has been really good. And... That included a number of um, webinars and technical masterclasses, which, which had about 70 people um, in attendance on average. Um, as well as that, the launch of um, the ongoing targeted skills development supplement by all the six colleges in the hub, uh, specifically to the hospitality and tourism industry for employers and employees, informing the them of the training support that they can avail of. Um, at the colleges, um, including apprenticeships and higher level apprenticeships. So further information um, we can be provided to employers um, and has been so from our economic engagement teams, which includes um, the initiatives such as Skills Focus, Innovators, Connected and Innovation Vouchers. Um, so other things that we've done in collaboration to help and address the skills shortage. Um, so when we speak, we're speaking on behalf of the six colleges in the hub and we have provided support in the design, development, planning, and delivery of the hospitality and tourism recovery package in partnership with DFE and the Hats Network, and included, as I said, um, a range of those webinars and technical masterclasses. So the whole will continue to work effectively with these sector bodies in order to address the skill shortage that we're, we're seeing and hearing from, from local employers nearly every day. Um, and our hub manager plays a very active role in addition to his own role, um, he also sits on the board of Springboard Charity, champion the sector, um, and supporting and future-proofing um, the, the talent pipeline into this sector. Um, the Hub has also played a real pivotal role in introducing and supporting the launch of the CHEF Network in Northern Ireland, linking in with the Institute of Hospitality. And the support has also led to the development of some uh, student CHEF annual conferences with skills masterclasses and professional skills conferences that um, students have benefited from um, in attendance throughout the year. So this has been really invaluable in raising skill levels post lockdown and that part of that recovery um, plan that we, that we have. As well as that, um, we, we also pr provide a platform for competitions you know, to raise awareness within the sector. Um, students across colleges partake in and the world skill opportunities where students and sector employees can learn and showcase their new and existing culinary and food service skills. And the hub is committed to supporting such initiatives going forward and developing these excellent relationships. Um, furthermore, in partnership with Ulster University, the hub has developed uh, a planned set of student engagement activities and promotional events for this year and going forward. And where possible, skilled shortages of chefs 
and hospitality students entering into career, specifically with the Royal Navy. So there's quite a piece of work being done about that as well. Um, I see maybe we have Louise back, so we don't know whether Louise, I'm kind of moving it in your space here. No, you're, you're, you're doing, doing a grand job. I do apologise, Ter. I uh, hope you can hear me now, okay? We can see and hear you now, Louise. Listen, for picking with gas. Uh, now, I, I mean, I'm, I'm very conscious that we have only limited uh, a limited amount of time. So I, I suppose the, there, there, was a, there was a little bit just where I wanted to flag up, if I may take the baton back briefly from Fiona before passing over to our, our colleagues. Um, is, is really in, in terms of saying, well, what are we doing to showcase the importance of the sector and the attractiveness of the sector? So a couple of things just to highlight before we, we conclude um, our the introductory remarks. Um, one is around the IFEX and world skills opportunities where we've had um, students and, uh, and sector employees who are going to be able to learn and, and showcase the sorts of really important uh, new and existing culinary and food service skills. So that's going to be something which is always brilliant. And in terms of the relationships that have been developed across uh, the colleges from the formation of the hub, it's been the collaboration that has really uh, across the six colleges which has helped on that. And I think I think that that is um, that is important. And I know that Fiona mentioned there the issue Fiona of the Royal Navy as well. Um, so so. In terms of finally about what are we doing about trying to further put the sector on the map in terms of contributing to the attractiveness of the, of the sector, the vital thing here is about raising awareness uh, in in schools and with careers, uh, um, uh, with the those in in leadership roles in in careers. We've developed in the hub um, a, a really important relationship with the careers occupational information unit, and in fact. That has helped provide the information that uh, spotlight the sorts of educational pathways and careers that are available to not just schools but the general public. And indeed, uh, yesterday, when the minister was at the launch of the Assured Skills Academy um, at version one in Belfast City Centre, the questions that were coming to the minister and to me and to the um, senior leader from version one were all about how the Assured Skills Academy might provide pathways for people who, um, who, 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 because they've been affected by COVID, weren't staying in, um, in tourism and hospitality anymore. And, and my point was, yes, absolutely, you can see those lateral skills coming across, but what we want to see are the skills within the sector maintained, developed, and indeed, I made the point about the sector opening up again. So it was interesting that various journalists were kind of going, you know, is digital going to be the route for people who've had to leave hospitality and tourism? And and it might be one pathway, but actually hospitality and tourism stands on its own two feet and in its own right. And that's what the Curriculum Hub has been trying to, to, to develop. Just a quick last point, um, the annual IFEX exhibition is biggest uh, hospitality industry exhibition held in, in Northern Ireland and, and the hub has definitely negotiated that this event will be optimised to, to its fullest and that's really about showcasing the very wide range of careers across hospitality, tourism and, uh, and uh, event industry and that's a bit about linking in with careers, teachers and there's going to be delegations for them coming in from across the province every day and introducing them to the industry. And, and finally, finally, uh, Belfast Met is also a designated hub, not just 
for tourism and hospitality, but also for IT. And both the hubs have been working together because of the multimedia students from the IT hub uh, have been able to produce a series of really good videos um, to promote the range of, of hospitality and tourism courses. And that's, I think that's incredibly powerful um, point to conclude on, if I may, Chair, um, from, from, from our perspective, that it's not just the leaders within the sector um, trying to spotlight it. We're using students within the sector and students within our own um, IT hub as well to really bring to life as young role models and older role models what uh, what um, the the uh, the vast array of potential pathways and careers are. And I think that 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 really goes very well for the future. So sorry about the. Um, the uh, technological problem there, and I think it'd be appropriate if I stop there, Chair. Thank you very much indeed for your forbearance. Thank you, Louise. And, and if I hand over to either Kieran or Rashi now. Yes, thanks, um, thanks, Chair, members of the committee, just for the opportunity for um, being able to brief you this morning on the um, Hospitality and Tourism Skills Network. Uh, I'm the project director um, for the network and I'm joined by Kieran O'Neill, um, who's been introduced as EMD of Bishopsgate Hotel. Um, Kieran is also the lead company um, with the holding the contract for the HATS network, um, which is supported by Invest Northern Ireland. So just obviously just to build on the um, the paper um, briefing that's been submitted, um, HATS, as you'll know from the brief, is an employer-led collaboration. It's supported by InvestNI and it brings together a strategic group of sector employers who are committed to workforce development. Um, and they sit alongside industry associations and key delivery partners from government and education. The network itself was formed um, pre-COVID um, and by a group of core employers. And it was born out of a robust evidence base around the sector skills needs. One of the biggest challenges being faced then by the sector was access to skills and talent to be able to meet um, its growth needs. Um, so the focus for HATS is around um, helping to address talent attraction and retention issues in the sector through collaboration. We're taking a longer term view of um, skills needs in the sector and our work program and activities that are reflected in the briefing paper um, is focused really around three themes, the attract piece, the retain piece, um, which really do what it says in the tin, um, and engagement, which is working with the delivery and the funding partners to help realise our ambitions, which is about growing a, a sustainable workforce to help the sector thrive. Now, the impact of the pandemic um, has magnified many of the skills challenges that have been already faced, um, with not least the reputational damage to the sector as a viable career choice. The loss of vital skills with people leaving the sector and the need to upskill and reskill workers um, to respond to some of the new and emerging skills requirements. So all of that has accelerated the need to invest in skills to support tourism's recovery um, and with an opportunity to build back, but to build back better when it comes to um, skills and professional development. We've got to act now to avoid a skills crisis in two to three years time um, the work um, that's required goes well beyond that of the network and it requires a genuine collaboration across industry, government um, and education um, and certainly we welcome um, the, the, the launch of the new skills strategy um, consultation coming forward that will um, again hopefully look to be able to support and address um, many of those areas. We've also input um, not only to that um, in terms of its development, but also the Tourism Recovery Action Plan to set out um, the skills actions that are required to help the sector to build back better. 
Um, and we need to see the resources and the funding aligned to be able to support the delivery of those actions. Uh, and we need to move now with a sense of urgency. Um, some of the, the key areas of need that are obviously um, noted in relation to skills on the, um, on the recovery plan is, is, is that whole education piece, um, a sector awareness campaign to promote the sector as a viable and sustainable career choice um, and to profile the breadth of opportunities that are, that are on offer. Um, uh, note that Louise is mentioning sort of the, the sheer skills type programmes um, and again it, it, it's been able to mobilise academy type employment programmes to support new job creation in the sector. Um, also apprenticeships are a key um, plank of training for the, for the industry um, and we'd like to see support for all age apprenticeships in the sector to be able to support the attraction and development of um, older workers and that's been something that the sector has long campaigned for um, pre-COVID as well um, and helping SMEs to build their HR capability to create um, workplaces, um, quality workplaces that encourage uh, a culture of training and retain talent and building our management and leadership capabilities to help respond to future stocks and um, support retention. So just, I mean, in terms of wrapping up, on a very positive note, the sector is bouncing back. Um, we've got 90% of businesses that have opened. The sector is experiencing unprecedented trading levels, um, and it's got a good outlook for the period ahead. But we've got to sustain the investment in the sector through skills development if we are looking to ensure full recovery back to pre-COVID um, employment and activity levels um, and to generate further growth within the sector and create jobs. So I don't know if Kieran wants to add anything further at this point, but certainly be happy to take any questions and expand as part of the discussions. Um, I think I just want to note that you know there's good work um, that's been referenced obviously in terms of um, uh, what the hub are doing um, and we're collaborating with them. Um, and there's um, work that's been highlighted just within our brief as well in terms of activity. But it's important that there's actually a lot more that needs to be done. Great point. Okay, thank you very much, both of you for, um, actually all three of you for the, um, the overview there at the beginning. Uh, it's really useful to get that. Obviously, we're all very aware of the impact that COVID has had on the hospitality and tourism sectors. Um, some of the, the worst impacted and obviously just now beginning to, to reopen and, and potentially get back on, on their feet um, and hopefully things will continue in a positive trajectory. Um, so I guess it's really timely for us to be having this briefing. Obviously as well you've referenced the skills strategy, the tourism recovery action plan and something that the committee is really aware of is making sure that all of these things align and there is um, you know coordination across them and, and that there is a bit of coherence to, to these, how these things are being developed. So I'll be I, I'm kind of keen to get your view around how you see that and w whether you do think there is um, decent alignment between the strategies and plans that are being brought forward. Um, that would be one thing that I would just like to ask. Um, I guess I have recently met with Hospitality Ulster and one of the, the things that they highlighted was you know, having a degree of flexibility within any kind of skills and training programmes that are being conducted. And I was just keen to get your, your views around whether you think that is um, being incorporated into the, the programmes that are being brought forward um, through um, HATS and, and the, the work of the colleges. And um, maybe if I let you take those two first of all, and then I have a couple more and, and other members are, are indicating here as well. 
Okay. Just maybe perhaps if I just want to note in terms of the flexibility piece, um, I mean, certainly just in terms of some of the provision, and it ties into that, but in terms of the alignment and joined up, um, it can be a very complicated landscape for employers to navigate um, when it comes to um, the skill supports that are there. So there is a need to kind of streamline some of those programs of support. Um, um, when we're looking at um, flexibility in and around programs, um, certainly there's much more of a demand um, within the sector for short, sharp, bite-sized um, chunks of learning. Um, and we'll see, obviously, with um, the impact of COVID as well, a move across to much more digitally enhanced learning. Um, and I think that that will continue because it's certainly something that's suitable for the sector. Um, with the collaboration with um, with the hub in the tourism recovery management program, um, it has looked to enable, um, obviously, delivery through um, digital um, learning um, and tailoring a program specifically to the needs of the sector. But we need to make sure, as I say, going forward, that we, we do have um, those flexible and um, short, sharp courses that particularly are akin to being able to support people who are in the workplace to be able to upskill at a time um, that's convenient to them. I know that certainly most of the funding and support um, to um, deliver upskilling is aligned with um, the colleges um, and sometimes that expertise might sit outside with a private training provider so again some flexibility in terms of with the the choice of provider um, if there's a need to be able to access um, skills outside um, the, the, the main FA piece. And just in terms of the alignment bit um, and join up across the piece I mean, one of the key areas that we'd obviously be keen to see um, join up as well is, is, is join up in the system from 14 to 19. Uh, I mean, that's something that's clearly not new um, uh, about addressing this competition for students in school with FE um, so that they can actually see that there is a progression pathway into vocational programmes. And I think that's a core piece in terms of um, the, the join up that's required. Um, also within the, um, the new skill strategy there's reference obviously to um, a national skills council um, and it'll be important to make sure that obviously sectors have um, such as ourselves have a key voice and role into um, that council um, uh, so that we can actually shape um, responsive solutions in response to the sector needs um, and i know if i reflect back in terms of work that would have been done in the past uh, in terms of it's both supporting a much more joined up um, approach was having um, dedicated um, action plans for sectors um, that um, allowed for activity across a range of providers to be um, to be taken forward and to support those needs, and that would have been under future skills action plans previously through the department. I don't know where, chair whether you whether I might make a comment. You go ahead, Louise. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think a couple of things to me, in, uh, in many ways, chiming with with what Roshan has just said. Um, first off, the the FE sector is writ large, as far as I can make out, in in the skills strategy as a key contributor um, to it. So there there is a piece for me, and and, and building and, and taking up the challenge that, that Roshan has said there around 
you know, the agility perhaps that our sector strives for in order to respond in terms of programme delivery to industry to really get that throughput of the skilled talent that um, that, that that industry needs. And I think, I think Roisin herself said it, collaboration really is the name of, of the game. I mean, the the, the pathway, and, and, and we recognise, of course, that in the, the 10x economic vision, um, I think one thing that perhaps is not is maybe not understood fully is the wide variety of courses uh, and opportunities tailored to, um, to and at different levels, and uh, that um, that the colleges are providing, and and will seek. To, to deepen in terms of the provision, but, but uh, and, and I'm sure Fiona could could talk you through those if, if committee members wish. But I think for me, the, the most powerful thing is the issue, and back to that word again, collaboration, and to which I would also add cohesion. We need to have a cohesive vision, and I certainly think the skills strategy is is enabling um, a dimension of that. But it actually has to be all those partners working together, which is why I'm delighted to be giving evidence today alongside Roisin and Karen. No, thanks for that. And it is um, useful for us to hear that about the collaboration and the partnership, something that certainly the committee is really keen to see incorporated into. And, and I think the skills strategy is one of those areas where it is really important that there is that joined upness um between academia, training providers, um, employers, and also trade unions and everybody else involved in that. We'll take on board the point around the, the Skills Council and just re reflect that as well. Um, and just to say, we are very alive to the issue around the, the 14 to 19 strategy and the need to have that joined up um, approach between particularly DFE and DE, but you know other departments and um, and um, the private sector and everybody else as well. And something that we are keen and, and you reflected it, Louise, in your own, uh, opening comments is that kind of parity between the vocational and academic pathways. So that's something that we will will keep highlighting. And I guess just the other couple of questions that I have are around that professionalisation of the sector. Um, and um, what was referred to in the opening comments about the culture of, you know, training and retaining um, talent, and I, I guess alongside that would be the issue of um, workers' rights, because particularly within hospitality and tourism sector, there would be kind of a prevalence um, of low-pay, precarious contracts, and um, and it was even mentioned yesterday evening in the the debate around the, the licensing um, legislation. You know that workers could be expected to work longer hours and, and things like that, more unsociable hours. And I just wanted to get your view around that side of, I guess, the reform that is necessary within the sector. And obviously, there are new get decade, new approach commitments around employment and workers' rights that do need to be taken forward. But is that something that that you feel is being taken on board by by the sector? And then, just my final question is around. Um, the actual availability of, of um, talent at the minute, hearing you know different um, views around that from from the south and from England, um, interesting views being expressed by the head of Witherspoons, who was a Brexiteer and now looking for um, EU citizens to, to come to, to work. 
So I was just wondering, what is the um, the kind of situation in the, the broader scheme of things around the, the current availability of um, workforce? I mean, I, I'm happy to take that. I mean, I've, um, it's not not often that I'm quiet, but um, the ladies are keeping me quiet. I think there's been a, a challenge for employers. I mean, I was asked to chair HATS uh, as a collaborative network back in 2018, um, and we had issues back then or, or, or concerns raised by industry and frustration around the, the amount of money. There was 25 or 26 million um, in, in, in the pot, and it wasn't going to the right place. So we wanted more candidates coming through. Um, obviously, COVID and the challenge that we've had in the last 12 months uh, have really devastated our industry. Um, without furlough, um, there would be no recovery. With furlough, we have potential to recover. I mean, I have 100 employees that I employ in the Northwest, and we brought all of them back, um, and we're back up and running. We've had an unprecedented demand on the return since we since we reopened. Um, it's been immediate. You know, the switchback has been immediate, but we're probably operating at 70 or 80 percent of our capacity in terms of getting staff back. There's a massive challenge. Um, I know that the, the Brexit. Um, is causing its own sort of concerns in, in different ends of our sectors. But as an industry, I have to say I'm 20 years in this, um, and the terms, the conditions, the professionalism that we're seeing in Northern Ireland has never been stronger. You know, it's it's, it's a great sector to work in. Uh, I know we get bad press, but one of the, the, the real reasons of HATS was, was to work in attracting people, uh, engaging and retaining that. Um, through HATS, I know that Russian has come up with a charter and a code of conduct and things like that, and through the Hotel Federation we're doing something similar. We have lots of great examples uh, of employers, but we also have, like any other industry, um, bad employers and, and bad terms and conditions, and we as a sector need to address that. The current demand has never been, now I'm, I say I have 30 years, uh, I'm a chef 15 years in hotel managing, uh, and I own my own property. Has never, I've never seen anything like this in terms of uh, a skill shortage. Um, and it, it's really, it's two factors where people have chosen not to come back and return from furlough uh, after seeing a, a different sector. We depend very much on a student-based um, employee um, that we fund through university. I funded more doctors, nurses, lawyers um, through the university careers. And at the moment with the universities away and in lockdown, that, that, that's a mark that's been turned off. When you put Brexit into a situation, we've had the majority of European workers uh, returning home, and, and that's really complicated, particularly for big hotels, that maybe 30 or 40% of their staff would be from um, European European countries. So there's a real challenge at the moment, but as an industry in the sector, we are working very, very diligently and very, very hard to make sure that we have the right terms and conditions. You know, during lockdown, I give 7% of an increase um, to all my employees with two living wage increases, whilst the public sector remain frozen. You know, so as a sector, we are working very, very hard. A lot of our businesses are running at forty percent and forty-two percent wage costs. Um, so it's not that we want to pay people more. At the end of the day, we just have a business that so has to be viable and, and profitable. And at the moment, we have returned to unprecedented demand, particularly from the Republic of Ireland. Uh, we've seen a real surge uh, in business while they remain closed the, these last number of weeks. I'm happy to take any questions from the committee in terms of, you know, private sector involvement. Okay, thanks, Kieran. Does anybody else want to come in around those points, or has Kieran covered it all? Okay, thank you. Um, it would be sorry. Go ahead. <coughs> no, 
Um, it would be useful if um, maybe you could share the, the charter and code of conduct that you've referred to there, Kieran, to with the committee because that I guess is something that we would be, be keen to see. Um, and it is really useful to hear that um, feedback in relation to the, the skills shortage and the issue uh, in particular around Brexit and something I think we're all very aware of is the you know the EU settlement scheme. Um, the deadline for that is the end of the month and. Um, you know, there there has been, I guess, a little bit of lack of awareness or or lack of communication around some of that as well, and it's something that, that we're we're keen to highlight. Um, also, uh, so thank you for the the responses there. And Mike, you're next up. Oh, chair, thank you very much, and good morning, everybody, and thank you for your presentation and and for the briefing. Uh, my area of interest, I think, is in in joined up government and and joined up delivery. So my first question is, given the range. Uh, of, of stakeholders, how easy is it to coordinate uh, a joined-up response? It, it, I'm, not, I'm not sure um, whether it might be helpful, um, Mike, to, to have our industry contributors first and then the public sector contributors. Would that make sense? Sure. Um, it's it's certainly a challenge because there's actually quite a lot of stakeholders uh, that, that are involved and i mean that piece in terms of collaboration is obviously something that we are um looking to strengthen through the work um, of hats um what i have to say is that in terms of the engagement across the piece with the various um organizations there is um, an open door and a willingness um whether that's the departments or its agencies um, I think it's actually just being focused in on the plan in and around key key areas and actually harnessing all of the resources to come together um, under um, key themes. So, you know, if we're taking something like an attractiveness campaign, then it's actually looking across the pace to see who all needs to be involved in that um, and being able to align and commit resources um, much more effectively to actually have impact. Um, and, I, th I think one of the key challenges, I think, sorry, I think one of the key challenges, I am a chairman of the Board of Governors of St. Cecilia's College in, in, in Derry, one of the key challenges is really that 14 to 19 engagement. Um, and we're not seeing the pipeline coming in. We're not seeing that interest in tourism and hospitality been sold at secondary. And indeed, at grammar school, it's non, you know, it's non-discussion. If you ask the grammar school, could you do a talk about hospitality and tourism, the principal won't even take your call. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll come on to that, Kieran, in, in a second. For me, so in, in your paper at, at 5.0, you, you have some action points. One of which is a desire to co-design flexible responses to emerging skills needs. I, I may be just having a brain freeze, but I don't even understand what that means. Who's going to co-design, and, and why would there be emerging skills needs? Is that actually emerging skills shortages, or are there new so skills? It's, it, it, it's really about um, the upskilling. I mean, the, the, the up, there's, there's upskilling and reskilling that will be needed within the sector to be able to um, bounce back um, and address, you know, whether that's management and leadership um, skills, digital skills, um, and social skills in terms of adapting to the needs of customers. So it's actually looking at what are those emerging skills needs as a result of COVID um, and um, equipping our um, workforce with those skills. And in terms of the co-design, I mean, it's critical that employers are part of actually helping to shape 
interventions for the sector. And one example of that has been the work around the um, the management um, development initiative, where it's you know hats has gone to the department and reflected. Here are um, here are areas under um, the management and leadership piece that we actually need to look at addressing for the sector and having that contextualised. Um, so it's it, it, it's bringing the sector's voice into actually shaping um, the design and the delivery of the programmes to be able to meet those needs. Right. So. Yep, sorry, sorry. sorry, Mike, if I can just get him in there, just um, further to what Roisin has said, um, you know, hats came to the college and, and we, to the Hobbit that has engaged really well and, and it's worked out to be a really good platform, particularly given COVID as well and trying to, to um, recover and, and that bounce back pace. Um, and as part of that, you know, Roisin and her our members came to us, you know, and we, we looked at the this kind of skills that would be really useful to embed into those bespoke programs. You know, those new customer care in a COVID safe way, you know, that resilience and well-being piece for those businesses and also for particularly for the tourism sector, you know, the delivery of these hybrid events, it's a new model for delivery and to try to build that into some training. Um, and I think that's kind of key where the hub comes into it's it's really its own, you know, it's a it's a platform for standardizing for sharing best practice for solving as a collective particularly during this past year what we faced um, and to support that recovery um, going forward and that's i think that's pivotal to to be able to bring employers together stakeholders together you know the hub will engage with schools and we've been doing so and continue to do so it is a challenge you know it's not a new challenge to us as um as a college but it's a door we we will continue to knock um, and one of one of what we did this year while we do try to get out to do school visits, and, and as Karen has said, that can be a challenge at times. Um, this year, the format changed, and we hosted, um, I think, 26 principals and careers officers on an online teams event, which worked really well, you know, and we reached schools that perhaps wouldn't have previously travelled to Belfast Met um, to, to hear about the sector and learn about the new skills. So, the, you know, while there's been negatives, but been some positives in how we do business and how maybe we would do business going forward. Thank you. On, on Kieran's point, uh, and, and several of you have referenced education for 14 to 19 year olds, can I take it then that you would agree with the conclusions from the Fair Start team who reported, I think, just a few days ago? Uh, who said there's a lack of parity of esteem and understanding between academic and vocational pathways and future job opportunities, and that a cultural change is needed, recognising the benefits of both academic and vocational pathways, that, that this is absolutely key uh, to transforming uh, how we look on these, on these issues. Uh, if I may come in on that one, uh, Mike, that is something that as principal and chief executive of, 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 a, of a college, I believe to my absolute core. And uh, and, and indeed recently at the, at, the, at the launch of the FE for me campaign, which is about trying to position FE as a valued and equal first choice. Now, we, and, and particularly for, for young people, but of course, FE provision and, and skills evolution and training can impact on our lives and is desirable to um, to be lifelong learners at any stage but particularly if we think as your, your point about 14 to 19 is this issue of priority and i i genuinely do think that a sea change is needed 
in Northern Ireland in terms of a recognition uh, at a societal level of the things that will drive our economy success. And, uh, and indeed, the minister, I think, uh, just just last week in, in response to some questions, said, you know, it is, it is, the be-all and end-all is not always getting a university degree, although getting a university degree is a wonderful thing. And I am sure many people on, on this committee have, have had access to tertiary, but it's not the only pathway. And, and, and at a very personal level, and I appreciate anecdotal is not always helpful, but it is in my, in my case, I'm the mum of uh, my youngest son is at Belfast Met. Having started at a university course across the water, came home during the pandemic and has taken this opportunity to reflect and reorient and is now going down a much stronger skills pathway, which meets actually his passion and, and his needs. And so I see it both as someone who's an advocate for the social inclusion and the fairness that we want in an inclusive society and particularly an inclusive economy in Northern Ireland. I also see it as a mum. I see the impact that, that actually what that parody means and that if you don't uh, make it 11 or if you don't make it at, at 16 or at 18, this is, this, is, this, is, this is not the future that we want, to, want for our children. You can make it at whatever stage of your life and actually career pathways, whether academic, or vocational is all about trying to help you fulfil your potential and become an active citizen and, an, and a contributor to the wider economy and society. So, um, sorry, sorry for the long response, Mike. It's something I feel deeply passionate about. Oh, oh, oh me, me, me too, Louise. I mean, the way I would put it is, inside every one of our young people is a spark of ability, creativity, talent. It doesn't necessarily need an academic environment to blossom. I mean, I, I would just anecdotally add, I mean, 35 years ago, and I'm showing my age, my career teacher told me I had no future in hospitality and tourism. Um, and I don't think, unfortunately, that has really changed in terms of the messages it's getting through to, to young people. I mean, at St. Cecilia's College, not every child will, will go to university, but we are secondary school of the year because we promote vocational as well as academic. And I agree exactly with what Mike has just said. You know, every child has a spark. We have amazing talent within the people of Northern Ireland. and. Not everybody's solution is to go across the water to university. When I left the regional college, the Northwest Regional College, I went to Port Rush, which was a dedicated catering college. Uh, I was funded, you know, I was a single mother and she was in benefits. We had no income, but I was funded to go to catering college um, and I was given £5,000 anniversary for two years. And, and those are the, the dynamic things back then that produced 60 or 70 chefs and 100 people into the hospitality and tourism sector. And we no longer have that sort of route. Every child phase now, it's not university in Manchester or Liverpool uh, or Queens, and they're not successful, and we need to change that culture. Couldn't agree more, Karen. If every child goes to university, we will starve. Hey. And the, the vocational, just to add as well there, in terms of actually the spotlight on the vocational and apprenticeship rate, I mean, we have that pathway in our sector right through um, from entry um, with um, apprenticeships the, the full way through. And that's actually something that employers obviously want to see much more of a spotlight on is um, is those vocational pathways. And it is, as Karen is saying as well, it's been able to actually strengthen that careers advice in schools so that um, young people are pointed to where the opportunities are um, and the vocational pathways that they can follow and that they can see a visible career pathway from entry right through into um, management roles. And, uh, and if I may, just very briefly, I would agree with, with Kieran um, as well around 
the opportunities that young people, whether they wish to join the sector as their full-time career aspirations or whether it is part of them learning the world of work while they study other things. And the Kieran made that point very, very clearly. And that my very first job and indeed all my summer jobs were all in hospitality and catering from the age of 16 onwards. What did you learn there? You learned teamwork, you, you developed your work ethic, you, you learned the responsibilities that came with taking responsibilities for customer care, front of house, back of house as well. The, so I think that the grounding in the world of work, that even those who are doing it as part-time jobs and as part of that funding process, like Kieran said, about, uh, um, as, they, as they study other things, there's, there's room for all of that, and surely the demand is such that it's a tremendous, it's a tremendous grinding both as long-term career aspirations and pathways, and also uh, as an introduction to the, uh, the 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 demands and the opportunities that the workplace gives us all. Agreed. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Just a, just a final thing on the back of that. I think it might be useful, and we're more than happy to share what the hub have done is actually developed a visual i think it would be useful for everybody so you can see all uh, we've aligned it to the different roles within this this industry hospitality and tourism separately um, and aligned the qualification roles and the stepping on stepping off points as well leading right up to all apprenticeships high level apprenticeships fa through the he so that might be useful it's, it's a one pager and it's a good visual and it, i think I think that this is a key time to share that with schools, with, with stakeholders, and we're more than willing to share that also. Yeah, Fiona, a, a visual is always welcome, so that would be yeah. very useful. Thank you. George? Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Um, and thank you for, for the discussion that we've had up to now. And in a sense, that discussion has been around some of the issues and indeed some of the problems um, that is faced in, in tourism and hospitality. But what are the solutions? Um, we hear all about the problems, but we actually need to see and hear some of the practical solutions to move us forward in this situation. Um, the chairs already touched and others have already touched on some of the issues, uh, pay and conditions, exiting the EU, uh, lack of EU and overseas students and young people coming to take part in the industry here. And that's a very important and vibrant part of the mix. Um, when, when we have visitors in Northern Ireland, and I hope that we will have them back again very soon, uh, one, of the, one of the joys of going into a restaurant or, 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 or a hospitality situation is it's not just Northern Ireland voices that, that, that you meet, although they are very welcome. Um, so I, I'm looking to, to hear from you what some of the solutions are. I also want to know in relation to the hub which you have and the, the uh, working with the, the other colleges, is that in competition with the other colleges, or, or is it complementing one another? And how do you do that if you're a, a college out west, or a college in the northwest, or a college in the southwest of the province? How, how is that all coordinated between those in terms of students? I know many students want to gravitate towards Belfast, so how are they, how are they encouraged to stay in their local area, or indeed transfer to an area where they haven't been before that's not just Belfast? Finally, uh, one area which is uh, unfortunately a recurring theme that has come up, and I heard this last week in discussing it with an FE principal, and it seems to be a, 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 there's a discussion around a, a barrier or a block that has been put up, particularly by grammar schools and grammar school uh, careers staff, who are saying that 
an FE or non-university course is something we don't even want our students to hear about. I find that particularly disappointing. It's an area which I think we as a committee will need to explore further because you're now the second group of people to raise this issue with us directly. Thank you, Chair. Just briefly, um, just briefly on the, um, the particularly around the grammar schools as um, A levels. I think you know the committee should consider the situation around A levels. We're failing our children um, at A levels because the majority of schools, even in the foreign learning community, cannot offer the A levels the students want. You know, so there's a real issue around that particular pathway in A levels, and we need a real rethink uh, of um, sixth years and the education piece around that. There is, um, from, a, from, a, from a private sector point of view, you talk about the solutions, you ask the questions. I've been involved in tourism for a number of years, I've chaired the Hotel Federation, been involved in HAT for three years. There is more than enough solutions. It's, it's time for, for actions as opposed to solutions. Um, yeah, I, Sorry, I, go ahead. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, we're, we're great about talking about strategies and plans, but actually when we start to the, the practicalities of delivering it. And then we start to deliver something and go down a different route later on. I, I think we need a very clear pathway into hospitality to make hospitality an interesting and uh, an exciting career path. And I appreciate the point that you made about the number of young students that pass through, and they are important to the industry in terms of providing uh, uh, you know, hands-on dinner plates. But there's also a major career to be had in relation to yeah. tourism and hospitality, and that side of it needs to be developed as well. I mean, I've just started a program with three, um, we've taken on three universities, you know, from the tourism colleges, so we do a training management development program, and the majority of our sector are starting to do that. We are really investing in our people, but as, as Roshan mentioned in the loop to earlier on, retention um, in our industry is one of the things that we need to, to really focus on addressing because you're getting people coming in for three, five, maybe eight years uh, and leaving the industry and moving on. And I think maybe just to add in terms of just if we're looking to kind of wrap up um, the, the, the need there, it's we need to stemify tourism. Um, it, it, it needs to have that kind of recognition um, in, in the strategies going forward and recognizing its growth and employment potential. Um, and that's from everything from the careers advice um, and campaign activity um, that follows through with that as well. A, br a brief word, if I may, as introduction to Fiona to talk a little bit in more detail in response to the, the, the query about the Curriculum Hub. I would say the, the purpose of Curriculum Hubs is the antithesis of competition across the colleges. What it is about is about, because there are a wide variety of, of curriculum hubs and, uh, and the hospital, hospitality and tourism is only one of them. But what it is about is about promoting that best practice and indeed the bringing that sectoral, FE sectoral coherence to the offer uh, right the way across Northern Ireland so that, so that the building on the, um, the local geographies and uh, the facilities that are available in, in those local geographies across the six, uh, the, the areas where the six colleges operate. But I think maybe just to give a couple of specifics as to actually how it works in practice to, to offer that reassurance to committee, Fiona might just uh, give a, a, a very brief word about how does it really work in practice? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, to, to answer your question, um, 
as Louisa said, the hub is, it brings together the six FE colleges. It's not a competition. In fact, the colleges are, are geographically spread enough that it's not competition. And we're finding that people are traveling much less and probably will travel much less than what they do. Yes, there was always an attraction for some to, to move to Belfast, but that's, that's, that's gonna happen anyway. But they, there's definitely not the competition between the six FE colleges. Um, the, the curriculum managers come together every six weeks um, and discuss the sector, the qualifications, the landscape, the needs, the training needs that we need to do with the skills, the, the challenges our students are facing, working with our, our awarding organisations probably this year, which has been a, a, a challenge working through mitigations and also uh, looking at progression opportunities for our students and make sure they're right for our learners. And that's something we're doing at the moment. We're doing a bit of a review um, and it kind of brings me back, back to one of your previous questions um, that, uh, you know, that gap between vocational and academic, there's actually a bit of piece of work going on that our level three vocational chefs, to give you an example, you know, that they have progression onwards to kind of do that joined up piece that they can move across from an, a level three apprenticeship onto a higher level apprenticeship piece, which at the moment there's a little bit of a blockage and that's something that the sector working through the hub is addressing so it's absolutely not a competition in fact you know even preparing for today and, and looking at the review of, of our enrollments across the six colleges six managers were able to come together you know we can see collectively there's two over almost close to two and a half thousand learners in the system in the fe system in this sector and there's very much that joined up thinking about what's ahead and and what we need to do to position ourselves to respond to that so that, that would be the core of the of the hub. There would also be that action plan that we review on a quarterly basis with colleagues in DFE, but that's something that it's fed into as a collective from from all representation within within the sector. Thank you, Chair. Hey, Thank you, Stuart. Um, can we bring Sinead into the spotlight, please? Uh, thank you very much. Thanks uh, for the briefing this morning and, and a very interesting uh, and stimulating conversation that's having. And I'm actually taking um, uh, some heart in, in some of those discussions as well. First of all, the sector itself. Um, it's great to hear um, that there's been a bounce back, uh, a pretty strong bounce back uh, in the sector. Uh, a lot of pent up spending has taken place and that's uh, heartening to see. I'm also seeing uh, here in the Northwest and Kieran will, uh, will uh, understand this as well, I see an awful lot of vacancies um, uh, and it's particularly stressful to the business owners at this time when they are so busy um, that they are perhaps working with some new staff. I have been out and about um, over the past week or so as things have opened up uh, and I'm listening to, to business owners, restaurant managers and they have new staff in place uh, and trying to you know, train on the job training etc etc when they're, they are so busy has been pretty challenging but you know there's an awful lot of opportunities in this sector and, and, and rather than a, a, you know, a vocational um, versus academia, I see this sector as actually a blend of both. Um, uh, and it's, it has two pathways uh, and there should be an escalator onto the other. And, and I think that some people don't give it the credit 
that it really is uh, it's due. If I look around my city centre and look around my town uh, and people that I know that are in this business, you know, they're they're on the whole what we call entrepreneurs. These are people that are driving the economy, uh, and these are the people that you know our young people look up to. But yet the sector itself is a bit starved of um, that that recognition as being of high value. Uh, and I think that there is that mismatch there, and the greater you know within the context of of the work that you're doing, that engagement. Um, is a key piece as well uh, and sometimes we have to get to the heart of that um, and it's not just the, the secondary schools but it's also the parents that they understand that the pathways that exist uh, in the sector and how lucrative uh, um, that the sector is as well. Sure um, there's care and he's, <laughs> he's deep pockets because of the sector. No but it's, it's a hard, it's a hard sector, hard work but it is mm -hmm. uh, uh, and it has all manners of skills. But I, I, I'm just wondering, you know, they are there are challenges, and the challenges um, are, are are here and they're happening. So there needs to be a bit of agility set in um, in into the sector at the minute. And I was just wondering, in, in relation to the academy type, um, you know, programs that are within the FE, are are we trying to build um, them up? So that they can respond to some of the existing challenges now, uh, and then um, the the other thing that I wanted to kind of really maybe ask here about, you know, though sometimes we change everything, uh, you know, because uh, the, the the pathways and that, but some of the old school training were really good pathways. For example, like the the, the training college in Port. Port Rush and that you know is is the industry being diluted by you know having very very uh, multiple you know training vendors multiple you know um, hubs or are we ensuring that everything is standardised even if there are places to to to, to um, take part in those courses. I think uh, just a couple of things that I would like to, to, you know, to stress to the committee. You know, the tourism targets that were set. You know, that one billion, that two billion. I mean, I'm in a situation where we were opened there uh, on Monday and Tuesday, and because of staff shortages, there was very few restaurants in the city or, or, or businesses that had remained closed. They've had to go to a four-day week. So the tourists that were coming in to experiencing our city and, and, and Belfast, the same was happening, where businesses are now closing because they can't get enough people. So they're having to short their working week. So when we align this to the tourism targets on a full recovery that we're talking about, it's going to be very difficult unless we solve this, the skill shortages, you know, that's the first thing. And that's a real concern when you're seeing people say, right, I'm only going to open four days a week because I can only get staff for four days a week. I can still make a viable profit within that four days a week. But that is not enhancing the tourist experience for Northern Ireland, for visitors coming in both local and international. So that's the first thing I'd just like to say. Second thing, Sinead, I'm an advocate and have been an advocate. You know, I'm a, I'm a student of the, North, the regional college. I went on then to study in Port Rush. Um, all the people that I studied with in Port Rush stayed in the industry. Um, there is a drop off in terms of the regional colleges, so I, I am an advocate that we read it, you know, we need to go back and, and look what worked in the past. But, you know, I have a son who's studying hospitality and tourism in, in Belfast, um, and he loves it, and he wouldn't change that, you know, so we have to listen to our young people to see particularly what they want. And when you look back and say it worked before, doesn't mean it'll work in the future. You know, we, we have a changing generation. Um, I call them the snowflake generation because 
they melt very quickly, um, very quickly. Um, but we, we we have to adapt, you know. I mean, we've gone now to a 32-hour-a-week full-time contract for people, and they can earn additional monies, at, you know, from the extra eight hours if they want to work more hours. And I think that's one of the big things that we're focusing on, giving people that work-life balance so they want to stay in, in our sector. But, I mean, I have an, I'm an advocate that we need to... We need to do something draconian around the chef's shortage at the moment. We need to address, as um, as Russian has referred to, that all-age apprenticeship that we shouldn't restrict just to young people. And those are sort of the two key actions at the moment that are needed. Yeah. Uh, uh, in relation to the Job Start programme and the uh, apprenticeship programmes that are actually running at the moment, um, do you believe that there should be some changes put into any of those programmes? Well, I'm particularly thinking about the apprenticeship programme. Is there more funding required that will help the employer take on apprenticeships in order for them to do on-the-job training? You know, yeah, I'll, let, uh, I'll, let, uh, I'll let Roisin answer that. But I mean, the question is, we've, we're, we're looking for three apprentices and we're looking for job search. We can't get any candidates in to see. You know, so the, the agencies who are facilitating these are coming to us and saying, we can facilitate these programs. And I'm saying, well, get me the people who are interested. In. So I think the programs and the structure of them, yes, more funding maybe, but the structure is there. It's just getting the people to engage with them. Maybe just to add that as, yeah, just to add that as well. I mean, it, it is about there's there's the chicken and egg piece. We have to stimulate the demand to actually come onto the programs. Um, and we have heard that obviously in terms of job start, we have a number of applications that have been approved, but the people not there to be able to take up the opportunity. Um, so the stimulation piece is needed. In terms of actually, um, when you talk about sort of you know the funding for apprenticeships, some of the things, and it probably ties into just being um, uh, looking at much more holistic package um, around the way things are delivered. So for example, with the apprenticeships, having support and linking in support across other funding streams that actually will enable um, a holistic package of support to an employer that they can actually train up a buddy or a mentor within the workplace that you can support a culture of training and development so that whenever you have um, you know give the stimulation piece to actually raise awareness of the apprenticeship opportunities come on to the program but there has to be an education piece and support for the employer to actually be able to help sustain somebody that comes in um, to be able to create that quality work experience um, and to, to, to mentor them through so it's it's creatively using some of those other skills supports like skills focus um, that will provide upskilling support but connecting them in with the apprenticeships so at the minute we probably have a lot of supports but they're quite piecemeal um, and yeah. trick is how do you bring them together in a holistic package that makes it easier for the employer um, and the individual and previously there was train the trainer um i don't know how many years ago that was rushing but train the trainer supported businesses you know you were able to you know dedicate 20 hours a week of one of your employees through invest in a to help train to become a trainer and that was that was really helpful to business and particularly now you know we, the world has just changed and and everybody has gone out to the market looking at the same time every business is reopened and that's just not hospitality and tourism that's retail that's everybody's now recruiting you know i've never seen as many vacancies as many jobs and and as short a labor pool ever mm -hmm. I, I wonder in response Sinead, to, to to your um your question around potentially academies but actually the bigger point being the, the pathways the range of pathways the range of levels which can build upon each other and the different points in terms of ent entering the industry at that. I wonder, might Fiona say 
a word or two about that. And I would also just very briefly like to say that, uh, particularly if, if Kieran said that, uh, that that provocative comment about the snowflake uh, generation. Part of what we do in AFE is that the, the work that we do on building resilience as we as we develop our, the, the, the people, and I will say young, but they're of all ages who are coming through the programme. And the people who I've seen most of during lockdown have been our level two and level three catering and hospitality students because they've had to come in all correctly masked in order to acquire the skills. And they've kept, they've kept going and kept going. And it's been fascinating to see that because our colleges, as, as many other principals can tell you, have had very restricted, but we've seen certain students who the only way they can learn is come in very safely, appropriately, socially distanced, et cetera, et cetera, on site. And they're the ones they've demonstrated. So I, 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 they've demonstrated their tenacity um, by coming in to get those skills. I'm just talking to a couple of young people yesterday, year level two, hoping to come back next year. One has secured a job in a very prestigious restaurant in the city centre for the summer. And it's hearing those little micro successes for them that they secured that first, first job, will be a runner within the restaurant, that you, you see the, the spark uh, that uh, Mike uh, referred to earlier on, growing growing within them, but specifically on, on the pathways and how important that is as a layered progression. I wonder, Mike, if you want to just be permitted a minute or two to respond to you on that. Yes, so um, thank you, Nelly. Just to respond to your question about suggesting an academy model, that's something we'd definitely be open to, to having a conversation about. Um, you know, we have seen an unprecedented number of um, employers contacting the college desperately looking for people um, and obviously you know we've had our students in but this year we're probably seeing a slightly less um of enrolled in the college for, for two reasons you know there was a challenge to to recruit for for some of these programs last year because of the impact of of the pandemic and equally you know we had to abide by two meter social distancing so it reduced the capacities in some of our kitchens to deliver training um, it's hoped that we look, we're looking to grow um, for next academic year, but that's still, you know, their, their plan's still they're in place. The academy model, I think, is something that could complement what we're existing offer, um, and that's something we could definitely look at. Um, and with regards to the qualifications, yes, I think that visual um, is really helpful to stepping on, stepping off points or progression right through, you know, to simplify things because qualifications is a very complex landscape and I know the committee have previously to talk about that and we're probably going to further complicate it by September we'll see the new level two traineeship come into play um, and then also we'll see the new level three advanced technical qualification come into play but the idea is to improve on what we're doing uh, currently that that level two traineeship will replace the outgoing training for success and we should see better retention of those mm -hmm. staying in the program and staying within the industry so I, that should be a positive thing the advanced tech will, will replace our our full-time level three fe offer but what it brings to the table is those um substantive placement um provision within that qualification and that can only be a good thing because we we, we want to get as many people out into the workplace and to, ha and to really improve those work ready skills so that they are there for employers with the view that maybe it leads to to full-time employment or at least to them being taken on as a higher level apprenticeship so they're being released by employers 
to do some of the job training with, with ourselves at, at another FE colleges. So yes, what we're doing, but we just need to continue to improve and add to it and respond. Um, and that's definitely something that, that FE is committed to doing um, and any funding that you know, would be available for any initiatives like that. Absolutely. You know, we're, we're, we're in the business of trying to solve problems for industry and, and stay closely aligned to, to their needs. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks, Janine. Um, can thank we bring you. John O'Dowd into the spotlight, please? Thank you, Chair, and thank you for the presentation thus far. Uh, Kieran, you were saying you're a product of Port Rouge Catering College. I'm a product of Newry Catering College. Uh, we were rivals. I'd say we were rivals back in the day. You were, and we all know who won that. It was us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the first time I ever set foot in a university, I was 45 years of age, and I was Minister of Education. And I learned my skills in life through the catering industry, through working in a very, very diverse challenging, rewarding uh, industry. So to any young people or, or not so young who are listening to this broadcast or may listen to this broadcast, I, I would encourage people to, to go into the catering industry. Um, it is challenging, it's hard work. Uh, there are good and bad employers in it. Uh, but when I left it, I was earning a good wage. Uh, I was, I was a, a, a chef running a very, very busy restaurant. Uh, earning earning a good wage. I have worked with numerous people down through the years, many of whom are still good friends of mine. Some have stayed in the industry, some have uh, diverged off into other trades, uh, and, and they learned their skills on it. I, I always take a pleasure in the fact that I meet people in and around my area who I trained, who are still in the industry, or who have moved on to something else. So there's great job satisfaction in it as well, and you can hand down your skills to others. So. I'm always frustrated when I hear uh, schools, and particularly grammar schools, uh, not allowing representatives in to just talk to their pupils uh, about the possible, the, the possible career pathways and potential career pathways that are contained uh, within the industry. And I think parents also, you know, there's a lot of pressure on parents as well. You know, uh, success is measured sometimes by if your children are going to university. And then that's the wrong way to measure success. Uh, and a number of weeks ago, we had the report published into Educational Underachievement, a fair start. And it's a good report. It, it has potential. Uh, but I, I asked this question last week as well, and this is where I'm, the point I'm trying to get to. We measure educational success by five good GCSEs, A star to C. Uh, and I'm wondering, is that a disadvantage to the catering industry as well? Because are we losing potential candidates into colleges and into apprenticeships and into other things because they haven't achieved uh, the so-called, and they are good GCS, five good GCSEs, A star to C uh, in English to maths, including English to maths. Are we measuring things, are we measuring success the wrong way? is the point I'm trying to get. I think that's also maybe the, the problem with the grammar schools as well, because they're seeing academia being measured. If you can put somebody into a career pathway, which will uh, be rewarding uh, and well-paid, then I, I think that's success. 
I think it's um, I think it's critical, you know, that we focus, uh, you know, on that first to five years. You know, getting a child through and leaving school. You know, I'm an advocate they shouldn't be allowed to leave school um, until they have their maths and English. Um, we are failing children in sixth year. That's where we're failing children. You know, the information we're giving them, the direction we're giving them, the, the lack of vocational within our secondary school or RFE. But I think every child should be kept at school until they have their maths and English. Because one of the things that we have in our industry is when you come into the sector, as you grow into management, that that is needed. You know, that holds a lot of really fabulous potential people behind that they haven't got that base in maths and English. And it's, a, it's not a complicated maths and English you need. I don't need to know the corner of a triangle, but I need to know to add, to buy, you know. So it's, it's critical. Uh, and as a as chairman of the Board of Governors and you as an ex-education um, minister, we, we've been in the same room. You know, we're failing them at A-level at the moment is where we're failing them. And, you know, whilst children are still doing their A-levels, they should be continuing their maths and English. If they haven't got it, you know, they should be given more support. It's more critical. At, at the moment, there's a massive challenge in schools. What schools have had to experience through COVID is going to have a lingering effect for the next two to three years. We have really damaged children's education over this last 12 to 18 months. It's going to be a recovery plan, and we need to address that. But I, I'm for getting children educated in their first five years in life, but also in, in terms of they need academic that they can get through, and they should be left with a certain core. You know, I, I educated in North America in some start, and you, you had to get your high school diploma. And if you didn't, you, 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 you were there until you had a beard and a mustache, and then you moved on. To, so, and, I, I think it's I think it's critical because it, it means that they can develop further later down the line and move in. And one one of the great things about our industry at the moment is the diversity. So chefs at the moment can become entrepreneurs. They can open food vans. They can open cafes. And that's one of the real challenges we're seeing in the sector. There's so much diversity now in tourism and hospitality that there's not just the core hotel or restaurant. There are so many ways to earn money in this whole entire sector at the minute. And, and, and that's why it's, it's, that's why it's growing, you know, to the billion target, to the two billion target. And that's the, re the real challenge. We have to get more people in. But I interviewed on Tuesday for, we cannot get a HE teacher for St. Cecilia's. We couldn't get an applicant. So we can no longer teach home economics past third year at St. Cecilia's College to 800 girls. You know, that's where we are in the terms of the moment. There's not that push. It needs to start at primary. We need to educate them around food, nutrition, and, uh, you know, uh, obesity. All these things need to come through primary school. It needs to be carried into first to fifth year. But I'm an advocate for maths and English. You shouldn't leave school unless you have it in some form. Maybe not to maybe not to O level or GCSE. You know, you need an A or a B. But you should have your basic knowledge of both those before you left. And we really need to rethink. And you need to talk at, at executive about rethinking A levels and, and getting that vocational and university paths. John, if I if I may, um, I I have very very strong views on the issue of how our schools are supporting our young people and where the interconnection with FE might be, and, and indeed how young people sometimes come into FE regretfully having um, not had the best experience at school and not having walked away with the qualifications that they aspire to. And as you said, you know, which and the marker, the, the ready reckoner is the five good um, GCSE. So there is, there is a point around how do we get the system, the joined up system, uh, particularly on that 14 to 19 working for all, working, and that's about building an inclusive economy and vitally an inclusive society. 
and you'll know that the FE colleges have not just a mandate or a requirement to deliver to the needs of the economy, but also a social inclusion mandate as well. And as for as long as we see schools, uh, and I would name grammar schools in this, uh, decide that, that actually five good GCSEs is not enough to stay on to head towards A-levels, but actually that there's a higher tariff required, then that begins, you begin to see challenges in terms of what that means, an enforced departure from schools at 16. Um, as well, so there, it's a, it's a, as you will know, clearly I'm speaking to somebody who's a former Minister of Education, you will know the complexity and the myriad of, of stakeholders in that. And so the only thing that I go back to as a former policymaker inside government and uh, supporting ministers over my career as a civil servant is about the need and indeed the desire to have that cohesive strategy overall, which Kieran said is endorsed by the executive and the vision that brings all educational skills partners into the mix and surely that's what our aspiration for a 14 to 19 strategy should be about because it is about serving our young people and giving them a future that whatever pathway they should choose and back to the issue of parity of esteem yeah uh, i'm sorry uh, i think in terms of uh, allowing young people that access to a career uh, see, the point I suppose I'm trying to get to is we're in danger of, we, we, this, there has been a long, long lengthy debate about the 11 plus that we tell people at 11 that they fail 11 plus their failures. There's a danger that if young people don't get these five good GCSEs that we're telling them they're a failure. And they're not failures. They're, 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 everyone has a different uh, way of learning and a different ability and a different skill set. And it's how you develop that. And, FE colleges are ideal for developing that. The catering industry is ideal for developing that and allowing young people to progress and learn. Uh, and also in terms of even uh, later on in life, returning to academic studies to advance their career pathway. So uh, I, I fully understand and indeed I'm supportive of many of the principles within the push for tackling educational underachievement. But educational underachievement is not the same as a skill set underachievement, this mm. point I'm trying to Very, very that, uh, I, I think that's a really, a really helpful um, point. And it goes back to changing the nature of the conversation, I would argue. It goes back to that and saying, we can hold these two things in our head at the same time and try and actually try and bring them together. Okay, thank you. Thanks, John. Can we bring Gary into the spotlight, please? Thanks, Chair, um, and thanks uh, to, to all of those who have contributed. I, I think it's been a very useful uh, conversation. Uh, there's a lot of optimism there. I think that's, of course, brought on by the fact that our, our industry is now able to uh, open again and we're all able to enjoy the best that it, that it has to offer. Um, uh, Kieran had mentioned uh, some of the best practice which exists in terms of how you uh, ensure that, that the young people uh, through our colleges and through our school get uh, access 
uh, and a way into the hospitality industry. And that's one of the frustrations that I have raised on many occasions on this committee, is the fact that uh, you know, our careers advice at times, and whilst there's, there's some fantastic people giving advice, at times it just doesn't match up with the needs and the realities of, of the society and the world that we're now living in. Uh, so that's something that has to be addressed. Uh, my question, many of the questions have now been covered at this stage, so I'm not going to uh, rehearse everything that has really been said. But what I would like to find out is how uh, you, as, as, as a group, um, share that best practice. Because we've heard uh, fantastic examples of uh, our Board of Governors, for example. I think the Board of Governors, uh, who have a, a wealth of experience from different industries, I think they, they make up the best Board of Governors, where people uh, with experience uh, can say, no, this is, this is the area where the jobs are, this is where the skills gaps are, this is where we need to be going. Um, so, so how do you share that be best practice right across Northern Ireland? Uh, the other question I would have is, is around your engagement with uh, the education department itself. Uh, you know, do you regularly engage with them? Uh, do you feel that you know your um, experience and your, um, I suppose, everything that you you've said today? Do you feel that that's been heard within the department? Uh, and you know, in terms of immediate actions from this committee, uh, what would be sort of the top priority that we as a committee could do to try and help you go forward? I know there's a number of questions there, but I said we appreciate if you could maybe address some of them. I think as a, as a chairman of Board of Governors, um, I, I don't think EA has any focus on creating careers. Uh, I, I think their focus is on education and there's no alignment to that. And I think that's one of the things you could beat back uh, in terms of the government piece, is EA are focusing not on getting people jobs in the future. Um, and the other thing I would just add is we really need to educate parents um, because one of the challenges is not often with the child, it's the parents believing that every child should go to university or every child needs to do, you know, um, and that's one of the big challenges we see, particularly in the secondary sector, is that the, 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 you know, the, they, the parents' aspirations uh, are not aligned with the child's ability. Um, and, and then therefore you have this, this, this imbalance. But the Department of Education at the moment are focused on just, on just getting children educated and, and there's no real career focus. And it's difficult to know what the jobs are in 10 years' time. You know, that, that, that's one of the big challenges as well. You know, we don't know what, what careers will be there for our young people in 10 year time, but we know that hospitality and tourism will be. You know, we will need we will need hospitality. It's a great sector for Northern Ireland. It's, it's only going to continue to grow. We've only scratched the surface. And unless we solve this particular feeding in, um, whatever way we do it, through our young people, through bringing people in from different cities, you know, from apprenticeships for older people. If we don't get all these things balanced, we're going to stunt the growth of Northern Ireland, really. And the Northern Ireland economy is going to be held back because you're going to find places really only opening 50% of the time, percent of capacity. So EA, not careers focused, and parents need educated. And maybe just to add there in terms of just a solution, I mean, it is, it's multifaceted and I think as part of the conversation we've brought up a number of them, so um, there's no single bullet. Um, it's a mixture of all of those and being taken forward in collaboration. So, um, you know, the campaign pace in terms of actually um, stimulating the demand and getting out that information about um, the sector and its opportunities and actually that it's never been a better time to come into the industry as it is now. Um, um, and apprenticeships, you know, it's not just young people, but it's actually looking to be able to attract in and reskill people from other sectors, um, whether it's through those academy programs or um, the all age apprenticeships. Can I just come in there from the college point of view? Um, 
it's really interesting, Gary, that you, you talked about um, careers versus kind of uh, coming up with a programme or a qualification, and that's a stance that we have really changed in, in, in Belfast Met over the last two years, that we have moved away from selling programmes and selling qualifications. We're selling careers and trying to create that. And, and part of that conversation started, uh, and you may recall from the TV, um, there was, I think it was the RAF, um, TV, yeah, do you know if you can fix a bike, you can fix a car, and you fix a car, you can fix a tank, and, and trying to build that kind of um, promotion material that was available on our web, and showing that we, you know, you can start here or start here, and, and where your journey should take you, um, and that's been really important, I suppose, in, in the marketing of what we've done as a college, um, with regard to your point about what links have we had with schools, that has been a decreasing situation for the last 10 years. We have very limited um, engagement with schools. Um, they, you know, particularly around our level three piece, it's, I think they see us as competition rather than something that, you know, that can look to sit alongside. I think it's, we've seen every, every student who walks through a door of an FE college or a university is different and it's finding that path. Um, but it's, we recognise that as in the FE sector that everybody has to find their path um, and it's something that we would really um, embrace kind of other, other education providers to do also so that the two can sit hand in hand. There's space for everybody in this, um, putting the learner at the centre and focus of, of that conversation. Um, with regards to uh, sharing best practices, I suppose the key thing, what, what we have tried to do and we're trying to do at the moment, working with other FE colleges, is to build our profile of case studies of those working in the sector and start to share that across multiple platforms with multiple employers, stakeholders, parents. We say parents are the key influence. We need to reach the parents um, and that's how we do so. And conversations and, and stimulus around that would be, would be most welcome. Thanks for that. That has been very, very useful. And I, I take your last point, Fiona, around the case studies. And I, I think that that's really important and that sells it. You know, when you hear John, you know, talk about, uh, you know, his experience in the industry, you know, myself, I, I, I was at a Northwest Regional College. Um, and not that, that uh, I suppose people would look at me and say, you know, not the best example, but there, there's many of, uh, of people who have went. There's fantastic um, case studies there, and, that, and it's just encouraging people to say, you know, that you know this is a fantastic uh, pathway. And uh, you know, to Kieran's point, uh, you know, it's not just about uh, saying to someone like, you know, you get such and such degree. This is about careers. This is about developing uh, careers. So, look, thanks for that, and um, as I say, thanks for for all the work that you're doing at this minute in time. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> And just want to say thanks as well for the briefing. I know we've kept you a bit longer than what you were scheduled to be here, but it has been a really, really useful conversation for us and um, some points there that we will be reflecting back to the, both to the department and as part of our ongoing work around the skills strategy. And that piece in particular, we have officials coming on in here now after you to talk to us as well around uh, vocational qualifications and assessments. So some of them we can pick up here directly. And the one around the, the careers advice is something that we have been hearing on a consistent basis. We know that um, over the course of the past year, it has been um, provided online and that that has um, opened up, I guess, the access uh, for parents and for young people to kind of a, a broader um, understanding of the type of careers that are available. And it's something that we're very keen to see taken forward 
uh, maybe on a more permanent basis um, as, as the careers advice um, uh, progresses. So look, just to say thanks for your input this morning. It's been really useful to us and I'm sure we'll be engaging with you again soon. Thank you very much indeed, Chair. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Peter, do we need to do... Chair, if we, if we make some suggestions uh, in terms of writing to the Minister, if members are content, we can lift a lot of the recommendations and suggested actions from the HATS briefing. There's other bits and pieces there, um, the points that were made about collaboration, cohesion and so on, and potentially greater cooperation with the schools. It would also be useful to put in that letter. Potentially, Chair, uh, if members are content, I could suggest to uh, write to the Education Minister. Um, yeah. It was very striking um, that Fiona had said that contact between FE and the school sector has decreased over the last 10 years, um, which was surprising. And it might just be an opportune time to write to the Education Minister to... Um, Try and reverse that trend and also reinforce the fact that the two departments have, have an absolute need to cooperate, especially around that 14 to 19 piece. Yeah. Um, it just seems very timely. Also, there's a number of documents that were mentioned that we'll also try and get our hands on, yep. uh, including graphics and schematics. Chair, it might also be helpful if we raise the issue of careers advice internally in the Department of Economy with careers uh, support staff there as well, and see if we can gain what their experience is of what we being, are being told. Yeah. Okay. Okay, members, then we're going to move on to our next briefing, which is a departmental briefing on vocational qualifications, examinations, and the youth training reform paper that we had received last week. So there is a clerk's memo at page 45 of your pack. Um, there is a clerk's memo from last week's meeting at page 48. Um, then there are departmental briefing papers on alternative assessment awarding arrangements for vocational qualifications at page 54. There are departmental briefing papers on reforms of youth training at page 70. Um, there is a copy of a progression pathways document which was provided by the FE colleges at page 17. And we have a number of officials um, joining us this morning to brief us, so if I could welcome to the meeting Clem, Rory, Donna, David, David, Catherine and George. And everybody is there in the spotlight already. So if I hand over to yourselves just to give us a bit of an op opening briefing, I think we are going to have two separate briefings. Is yeah, that sure. I been... think the, the, the way it's going to be structured is two, um, two parts and we can sort of take it from there as to whether okay. members want to ask questions after part one or whether they want to wait till the end of part two. Okay. Okay, so if I hand over to yourselves. Okay, um, thank you. Good morning, Chair and committee members. Can you hear me okay? We can, yep. Okay, great. Listen, first of all, thanks very much for your time to this morning to talk about vocational examinations and their reforms to youth training. My name is Clem Athanasiu and I have responsibility for the Apprenticeship Careers and Vocational Education Division. So as Peter's updated, we're going to cover this, this session in, in two parts. Firstly, around the vocational examinations COVID response, including essential skills, um, and then moving on to youth training. Um, so starting off with the um, like vocational qualification response work, um, you know, I'll provide a brief overview of the context, the, the key challenges and the outcomes that we've achieved over the past 15 months with a brief forward look to the next year. 
So to set the context, um, this work is really a, a central to ensuring that we have the supply of, of skills to the economy and we support the progression of a wide range of learners. You know, vocational qualifications landscape is complex, as been mentioned in the previous session as well. And there's about 2,500 qualifications, um, 89 awarding organizations, and a wide range of education settings. They also serve a number of important but distinct purposes, such as progression or signaling occupational competence. And these different purposes had a major impact on our COVID response, which has led to the differentiated approach that we'll walk through. And also finally, in terms of context, um, collaboration across UK regulators is a real key and substantial feature in our response. This is because it's really important for us to provide continuity and consistency for learners and to try and protect the portability and integrity of qualifications. So we'll start off with the work in summer 2020 at the, at the outset of the pandemic. Initially, we worked really closely with national and local stakeholders to try and develop an alternative system for the award of vocational results in summer 2020. And our real objective was to ensure that as many learners as possible receive fair and timely results. So in April 2020, we established an initial task and finish group to try and give FE colleges, schools and training providers a strong platform to try and make sure that our response was practical and achievable. Later then in April, the Minister confirmed the Northern Ireland position, which aligned with the approach that was broadly taken in England and Wales through three broad approaches. First of all, that qualifications that were used for progression to FE or HE, learners would receive a calculated result based on teacher assessment or judgment. For qualifications signaling occupational competence, we would put in place adaptive assessments where it was feasible. And then for qualifications serving a mixed purpose, we would use a mixture of calculated result, results, um, adaptive assessments and, and delay. Um, the implementation of this approach was a major logistical exercise and involved multiple departments, regulators, learning centres and the 89 awarding organisations we talked about earlier on. And I think the, the delivery of this was compounded in Northern Ireland due to remote working um, across providers and also the academic term ending a month later than it does in other jurisdictions. Um, furthermore, many of the adaptive assessments required physical access to providers or employers' premises, um, which was challenging due to the local lockdown restrictions. But the main outcome from, from this work was that around 86,000 certificates were awarded across 1,700 different types of qualification by 67 award, awarding organisations. This represented about 83% achievement compared to previous years. I think it's down to a lot of hard work and innovation across the stakeholders in the NI system. So moving then into the 2020-21 academic year, um, in October, we established a further group um, to focus on communications to support the, the task and finish group. And um, this brought together the, the colleges, SIA regulation, schools, the Department for Education, the Education Training Inspectorate, training organizations, and the NI Federation of Awarding Bodies. And this group really tried to identify further operational solutions to try and mitigate the ongoing disruption as it unfolded and also to try and improve our, our coordination and key messaging with the wide range of stakeholders. And um, then the minister confirmed our initial policy position for 2021, um, that it would be largely based on a, a business as usual model with supporting adaptations. However, um, as things changed and following extensive national lockdown restrictions in January, 
And the minister, in conjunction with other jurisdictions, agreed that other flexibilities will be put in place for the January exam series, and in particular around the BTECs. So in this regard, FE colleges, schools, and other private sector providers were offered discretion to determine whether it was appropriate for their learners to set the scheduled BTEC examinations in January. And then subsequently, in the interest of the learners and the staff, all six FE colleges took the decision to cancel all of the external vocational examinations in January. So whilst every effort was made at the start of the academic year to try and maintain this business as usual approach, it became increasingly apparent that this really wasn't sustainable, especially in the light of the wider decision to cancel GCSE and A-level examinations across the UK, including Northern Ireland. So that's why in January, there was a revised MI position under the four main scenarios. First of all, for VQs with a similar purpose to GCSE and A-levels, we would cancel external examinations and uh, awarding organisations would put in place suitable alternative measures. For um, NI-only VQs, which are needed to demonstrate occupational competency, we would put in place adaptive assessments, and if these weren't possible, we would delay. Um, then for uh, NIAOs offering VQs, we would utilise a combination of alignment with the off-call position, with some divergence where appropriate on the basis of Northern Ireland standards, portability, or different considerations such as health and safety. And finally, on essential skills, we would cancel external examinations and move to a teacher judgment on the basis of trusted evidence. So looking ahead then to, to next year, we're working hard to continue to engage with stakeholders and the implementation is, is on track for this summer. Um, we'll continue to prioritise the, the planning and delivery of VQs in the new academic year with a particular focus on those learners who were not able to complete um, in this summer. And we're going to try and inform this work by further evaluations on the current arrangements, but also ongoing engagement activity with other jurisdictions, regulatory partners and local stakeholders. Whilst we're, we're all moving towards what we hope will be a full recovery phase for the wider vocational education system, realistically, we don't anticipate it'll be business as usual and there'll need to be a range of mitigations and adaptations to help learning centres and learners to achieve those consistent and timely outcomes um, next year. So um, that concludes our overview of the work over the past 15 months or so around extraordinary examinations and assessment, which I hope was helpful background. We're happy to take any, any comments or questions now from the committee. If you just want to maybe go on and, and do the, the second briefing, Clem, and then we'll, we'll bring all the questions in, in together, if that's okay. Okay, sure thing. Um, so I'll provide a brief introduction on this side before passing across to Catherine McCamley, who's our lead on youth inclusion, and then George Sampson, who is the deputy director within the division responsible for traineeships. So um, this September, we're launching two substantial new vocational education programmes. I heard some of them referenced in the previous briefing. These are Skills for Life and Work, which will be largely at level one with some flexibilities to support learners, and also traineeships at level two. And these will in the main replace previous programmes which were training for success at levels one and two, and then the wide range of mainstream further education provision. Um, so I think both traineeships and Skills for Life and Work stem from a 2015 strategy called Generating Our Success which at that time was endorsed by the executive. The strategy really committed to new level two provision, which was equivalent to GCSE level with a, a clear dual purpose, 
Firstly, you try and provide young people with the skills, experience and qualifications that are valued by employers. Um, but really to differentiate from current provision, having that broad-based educational outcome that is equivalent to the lower secondary GCSE um, outcome of, of, of five good GCSEs to try and provide that sort of foundation of progression um, into ongoing education, employment and lifelong learning. And it's this aspect that is really important for, for learners in the economy, but it's probably the most challenging aspect of this reform to deliver. Um, we know, however, that raising the standard of, of level two vocational education will only work if we have suitable provision um, below it to support young people's progression who have a slightly longer education and skills journey. So that's why we also committed to establishing um, new entry level and level one provision and co-design with stakeholders in this area has been a recent strategic priority. So whilst this was some time ago, due to some really substantive pilot testing and design work, I think there's a, a much stronger economic and social case for these reforms now. Uh, you know, recently, the department's 10x vision and um, skills for a 10x economy were both clear that skills are our real primary driver for economic success. And the main objectives for the skills strategies um, are really around addressing skills and balances, driving growth and creating that culture of lifelong learning. And then if we think about COVID, it's really important now that we ensure young people have access to high quality vocational pathways that they, that they understand. Um, moving on a little bit now to what's changed in the world of work. You know, alongside the academic and vocational pathway in the past, there have been a significant volume of young people who would progress directly into lower skilled jobs. But we know that this pathway is rapidly declining and that only about 10% of job opportunities will be available to those with like that broader level two outcome in education, whereas about 30% of school leavers each year fall into that bracket. And that rises to 50% for those learners who are entitled to free school meals. So that adds up to a really big reduction in the life chances and security for a significant proportion of young people. At the other end, we know the skilled vocational pathway faces a sustained shortage in higher level technical skills. Whilst there's always going to be a lot of demand for graduate and postgraduate skills, level three is actually the highest level of undersupply. And there are around 20 degree students for every single level four to five student in the UK. So if you think of biggest provision, whilst it's not at levels three, four and five, there's a really important role to try and increase our engagement with those cohorts and map out an effective progression pathway for those groups to ensure that they've got the foundations so that they can progress and meet what is a really considerable gap at the, the higher level in terms, of, in terms of skills. I think the needs of participants who use these provisions have also changed significantly also. Whilst there's been a lot of hard work and commitment and, and innovation across the range of TFS providers and some really impressive success stories, I think if we look at it on the whole, there's been declining numbers of participants and declining providers in the marketplace and the needs of the users have changed to the extent at which it means the TFS program is only delivering modest outcomes. A recent independent review by the ETI recommended that TFS be replaced by a more flexible program at level one, and then it this be partnered with a separate and rebranded vocational program at level two with a focus on progression. So that's quite closely aligned with the strategic intent I mentioned earlier on. We also know that good qualifications are no longer enough so for young people to succeed, we have to try and develop those, those wider transversal or meta skills, such as teamwork and communication. And there's a much stronger focus in the development of these skills in the new provision through high
Alistair Catherine and George speaking about the programmes. I would summarise that the new provision taken together um, have been designed in partnership to try and enable a much sharper focus on the needs of the users and the wider economy, and that the reform simplified the vocational education pathway to try and ensure that it's well understood and has no dead ends. And you know, our feeling is that this will help stakeholders to engage with the pathway and then will also help us to collaborate more effectively with different types of provision upstream, such as within the school environment. So thank you. I'll just pass across to Catherine now. Thank you, Claire. Um, can everyone hear me okay? Yep. Great, thank you. Um, my name is Catherine McCamley. I'm the Head of Youth Inclusion for the Department for the Economy. I'm going to bring you through briefly the Entry Level Level 1 proposition at the moment. Um, as Clem has referenced, the Generating Our Success strategy made the commitment that young people who did not have a Level 1 outcome would be supported to achieve it in order to be able to progress to youth training at Level 2. Entry Level Level 1 reform activity commenced in early 2019 with the goal of taking learning from both the current programme training for success and the department's wider experience of working with young people facing multiple barriers to engagement through outcomes-focused programmes delivered through a youth work approach under our United Youth Commitment, which is part of the Together Building United Communities strategy. Uh, a co-design team comprised of stakeholders with different areas of experience and expertise worked together throughout 2019 to develop the design framework for a new, flexible, more responsive programme aimed at improving how we address barriers to engagement or retention, learning and achievement, and ultimately improve results and progression outcomes. However, due to time constraints and need to ensure continuity of training availability, a project assessment review panel advised that additional time would be needed to fully develop the reformed programme particularly in terms of delivery of the framework and practice, so the implementation aspect. And therefore, the team have been working to bring forward an interim programme called Skills for Life and Work, as Em had mentioned, which is based on the underlying TFS funding model. However, it also includes some positive changes where they were possible, um, including lessons from our co-design process, so we could move towards and embed some incremental change within the scope of the, the delivery model. This programme was initially scheduled for a September 2020 start date, but was postponed to 21 due to the impact of the pandemic. Um, in terms of what learning the programme provides, uh, providers must support participants to achieve regulated professional and technical qualifications, as well as regulated qualifications in personal and social development, in employability and in essential health. These will be targeted flexibly based on prior achievement. And while they, they usually be at entry level or level one, there's also some provision for level two achievement where this is appropriate, particularly in essential skills and the other curriculum areas as well, according to the individual need. Providers must ensure that the qualifications selected have clear progression value that meets the participants' ambitions, and especially with regard to the progression pathway into the Northern Traineeship, where the basic entry requirement is four GCSEs at HG including English and math as a DTF or an equivalent. Um, so I'll just take you through the key design elements of skills for life and work. There will be an individualised personal training plan for every participant, a flexible delivery model undifferentiated by level, including the option for a proportion of online remote learning so as to maintain the new blended learning expertise developed over the past year, personalised targeting of qualification levels, a strong emphasis on the progression value to the participant, 
good quality world of work activities and a work placement only when the participant is ready and a participant training allowance. So what does it mean? A, a more personalised programme focused on progression and success for participants. Skills for Life and Work will be open to eligible 16 to 17 year olds and then there'll be certain extensions to age eligibility for those young people with disabilities or who are coming from a, an in-care background. Participants will have a training entitlement of 104 weeks or 156 weeks if they have a disability. Uh, the business case outlines a likely demand of up to 1,500 young people commencing training throughout the programme each intake year on the basis of a one-year initial recruitment period with the option to extend the contracts for two further years. The procurement competition launched in January 2021. Competitions have not concluded yet. And once the contract award information is in the public domain, we will advise members of the committee of the details. And my team are keen to resume development work on the fully reformed programme as soon as possible. Our capacity has been limited so far by COVID-19 contingency work and the ongoing demands of preparations for the interim programme. The fully reformed programme will be operating in a different landscape with the end of the European Social Fund in Northern Ireland and in a post-COVID-19 <laughs> labour market. The reformed programme's goal is to meet the individual needs of the cohort of young people who face many and varied barriers to engagement and learning and, and to provide a framework that supports their social and emotional growth alongside the employability and functional skills that employers tell us that they need their entry-level staff to possess. It will feature key practices from youth work aimed at helping participants to take greater control and ownership over a learning journey and a pathway to employment that works for them. There will be a stronger focus on the quality of careers education in the programme to support decisions related to this pathway with employed movement central to ensure an alignment with job opportunities. We anticipate further co-design work with all stakeholders to update the framework and to finalise the programme. Work will be undertaken in partnership to consider wider impact on the development programme design and to bring forward reform as quickly as possible. So thank you. Um, I'm going to pass on now to George Sampson, who will be taking you through the, the traineeship space. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, hello, can everyone hear me? Um, generating our success, the Northern Ireland strategy for youth training, committed to the development of a new youth training system that delivers sector relevant skills and knowledge at level two and integrates work based learning along with core literacy and numeracy skills. To that end, the department developed a traineeship programme that will work towards participants achieving a five GCSE equivalent outcome, including English and mathematics qualifications at level two, and additional qualifications deemed relevant to the needs of individual sectors. Traineeships have been developed based on extensive research underpinning the review of youth training, including primary research with key stakeholders such as employers, sectoral representatives and young people. More recent engagement with the Strategic Advisory Forum and the sectoral partnerships has indicated that the needs identified within the review remain valid and that the traineeship offering will build on the strengths of the existing provision whilst addressing many of the identified deficiencies. Traineeships will replace Training for Success Level 2 and full-time mainstream vocational further education at Level 2 and will be introduced from September 2021. A key development compared to existing provision is that the traineeship aims to deliver a full Level 2 outcome, including English and Maths, 
that will enable participants to access employment and higher levels of education, recognising the challenging nature of the programme, minimum entry criteria, that's four GCSEs at Grade G, including English and Maths at Grade F, have been established for the programme. The programme comprises the following key elements. A vocational qualification, educational qualifications, work-based learning and additional professional qualifications. The programme will be delivered exclusively by FB colleges throughout Northern Ireland and when fully operational, traineeships will be available across more than 30 occupational areas. The traineeship will be available to young people over 16 who are not yet in employment but who are ready and able to engage on a challenging programme in their preferred occupational area. While the target age group is 16 to 24 years, the traineeship will be open to all age groups. Traineeships are being introduced on a phased basis. Approximately 1,850 trainees will begin a traineeship in 22 occupational areas this year. The programme will be fully operational from September 2022, with 4,500 young people expected to start on a traineeship across 38 occupational areas each year. It is expected there will be up to 4,500 participant starts per year, costing a total of £40 million per year when the programme is fully up and running. The Department's recently published strategy, a 10x economy, sets out an economic vision for Northern Ireland over the next decade and a commitment to encourage greater collaboration and innovation to deliver a 10 times better economy that will benefit all the people of Northern Ireland. The importance of transforming the skills system is central to delivering an economy that is 10 times stronger, 10 times more prosperous and 10 times more resilient. It will require investing in the skills that will drive our key priority areas, boosting the research and innovation potential of the workforce, collaboration between government, business and our research institutions, working cohesively across the education system to address skills imbalances and ensuring appropriate pathways are in place to enable all citizens to reach their potential, benefiting from and contributing to a stronger, more prosperous, more resilient Northern Ireland. The traineeship programme will contribute to this economic vision by providing level two vocational education programme that is designed to meet the needs of the local employers. By prioritising those skills that are most economically relevant, by offering breadth beyond the skills of specific job roles, by delivering a simpler qualifications landscape and by providing a high quality offering informed by local stakeholders. The provision will deliver skills for all the five strategic cluster areas. Digital ICT and creative industries, agri-tech, advanced manufacturing and engineering, life and health sciences and financial services, supporting an individual's progression into employment or higher levels of training, and to support the Northern Ireland economy by ensuring the skills employers need are readily available. Management of the traineeship programme will be overseen by a project board of officials and stakeholders. Following the introduction of traineeships this year, it is expected that there will be an evaluation carried out within 12 months after full implementation and regular independent evaluations during its lifetime. These evaluations will provide a level of assurance regarding the quality of provision and will be supplemented by the gathering and analysis of verified quantitative data on the profile of participants including retention and achievement rates. Routine monitoring and evaluation will be carried out comparing changes in progression outcomes for participants on traineeship provision and how the new system compares to existing initiatives to demonstrate the benefit of the reform system. That concludes our update and we're happy to answer questions. Okay, thank you very much for, for both of those briefings. Um, I'm going to focus on the, the, the youth training um, aspect and then other members have indicated um, to come in as, on um, different aspects as well. 
Um, I, I have a, a few questions, and I guess the first and kind of most obvious one is this is, as I understand, due to, to begin in September. And I just wonder, what is the level of engagement with, um, with young people, with employers, with um, parents, and how aware are people of the, the new programmes? Um, that would be the first question. And then um, I, I, I welcome what is being laid out in terms of this being you know, a personalised approach, this being participant-focused. Um, I have concerns around the level two being provided only through FE colleges. And I know when it was um, being mooted last year that that was something that was raised with us by, by training providers, that you know there could be barriers to, to access for, for young people who have been, for whatever reason, disengaged from more formal education um, settings or whose um, learning style is more suited to uh, the training providers in, in their local communities. And um, I would be keen to hear from you about how that has been taken on board and how you intend to address that. Um, I would also be keen to understand the progression from the level one uh, program into the level two because as as I understand you've laid out that there is um, a GCSE requirement for the level two but is there a progression straight from the level one program into the level two and in respect of the level two program it seems to be a, a post-16 is that um, offering despite it being a level two which is I understand is equivalent to GCSE so I just wonder, is there you know, um, opportunities for younger people to participate in similar programmes? So that would be a few of the questions. Okay, thank you, Chair. I'll start to work through some of that. Um, and if you feel I've missed anything, please um, let me know. So I think in terms of awareness, there's probably three main stages. First of all, there is a huge amount of engagement across all stakeholders to develop the actual strategic concept. concept. That included all the, I suppose, the standard um, policy development aspects such as workshops and formal consultations. But then we also had a lot of additional activities to really engage with parents and, and young people through quite creative workshops on, on the actual concept. Then there's been a second level of engagement around developing the actual program content. And in that, we really work closely with a wide range of sectoral partnerships to ensure that we've got the right balance of curriculum that supports the young person's entry into the sector at level two, but also partnered with that breadth so that they can progress more generally beyond this, the needs of the particular job area. I think then, you know, as we move towards delivery, we've been really working hard on some of our communication products and tools to try and get some more user-friendly information out there to parents, to young people and their different influencers to ensure they understand what the programs are all about. And that's information that's currently um, in development and will be shared as part of a campaign to coincide with the summer examination season and young people's decisions. And we're very happy to, to share that information um, and some of that content whenever, whenever it's fully developed. I think it's, it's a real breath of fresh air in terms of how we're engaging with young people. So um, I'd, be, I'd be keen to share and take views on that. Um, now moving on to, I suppose, why, why FE? Um, I think it's, it's first of all important to note that we think that training providers, whether private sector or community providers, have a really important role in the system. 
Um, so we certainly um, don't want to take away from that. Um, but it's important to note that traineeships is not a replacement for, for training for success. It's a very different program in that it focuses on that broader level two outcome. Um, and if you look at the existing cohort who we expect to go on to the traineeship program, over 85% of those users are currently within the FE sector. Um, so following the conclusion of the business case, which was the main tool we really used to inform our, our market approach for this, we held um, a workshop for all providers to let them know what the delivery landscape looked like and what role they would play. And then we followed that up with quite a lot of intensive kind of co-design work with both the FE sector and the, the private and community sector to ensure that we had enough flexibility in that skills for life and work piece so that we can support those young people who you talked about who may not yet be comfortable in moving to a different learning environment to progress so they can do some level two skills where relevant and also address some of those barriers they may have to, to employment or ongoing progression. Um, I think then in terms of progression from level one, we have worked in terms of the design of the two programs, so they click in together in terms of their wider parameters and the particular curriculum sector, but we're currently working hard through a number of different peer support groups um, with both sectors to have that as an early focus and program delivery because it has to be a very active um, deliver and evaluate recalibrate approach so that we understand how it's actually working in practice because the success of this new provision really does depend on that being you know, a well-understood pathway that works. Um, and then the final point on post-16, you know, I think that broadening pathways is generally a good thing. And I think there's some interesting work in Scotland around the foundation apprenticeship, which is where you have you know, elements of vocational education being delivered alongside academic education. So it's, it's our hope that we're simplifying the pathways vocational education and this will make it easier for us to engage with other learning environments upstream and um, to explore what implications it has for the wider the wider education system um okay thanks for that is clem froze oh no oh, thought you have froze there um clem um no thanks for that and um so you, you're saying that the um the traineeship has been developed in co-design with the training providers and, and colleges. So we have sought the, the views of um, training providers around it and, and we, haven't, we haven't received those yet. But um, can you give us some indication of the, the type of feedback and the response that you had from the, the training providers in respect of um, the, the proposals that are being uh, made in this regard? Um, we had training providers really as part of the core strategy engagement and then as part of the strategic advisory forum that is really fed into the department's work in this area every step along the way. Uh, and then I suppose at one point um, we then go into a, a business case methodology where we appraise the different options for delivery and that was obviously a, a separate approach that was based upon you know, the evidence and the feedback and the monetary side. I think it's fair to say whenever we first engaged with the training provider landscape around our delivery plans um, in January last year, just before the pandemic hit, there was um, probably some concern among providers around what their place was within the system. Um, but I'm pleased to say that following a lot of, a lot of hard work and commitment on, on both sides, I think we moved much more to a position of, of understanding and we actually received some subsequent correspondence from 
you know, notable providers to really welcome the department's transparent approach um, and their thoughts that actually the system would work much better together following following that engagement. I'm wondering if, if Catherine wants to come in and join and just mention a bit more about that work. Oh, I think Catherine might be on mute. Can you hear me there now? Yes. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, I think um, in terms of the entry level level one business case planning, um, we had originally analysed the, the number of young people and, and looked at the demographics of folk who would be undertaking entry level level one equivalencies within TFFs. Um, and following engagement with the, the wider marketplace, there was some um, discussion about where there were young people who sort of fell into this middle middle ground who maybe would have faced barriers and would have needed some additional support for various reasons. And we have included a, an alliance within our um, forecasting that identifies a place for those, those young people and skills for life and work. Um, and over the last number of months, we've uh, passport and all to the Skills for Life and Work program is through uh, a personalised meeting and discussion with a careers advisor from the department. Um, and we've had ongoing discussions and, and developed guidance with those careers advisors as to how they will work with young people and work, work out which program is the right program for them and talking in depth about where there are potential barriers to their engagement because the focus has to be on trying to find the training place that's right for them to achieve. Um, I hope that's helpful. I mean, we've we've had ongoing engagement um, through the procurement process, but I um I, I can't talk too much about that because that's an, an ongoing position at the moment. Um, but but we have been routinely engaging, I suppose, with um the stakeholder group for entry level level one training and um, in the, the private training sphere. Okay, no, look, thank you for, for me a bit of feedback there. Um, thank, thanks for the responses, and I guess it will be useful for us to to get the feedback from the training providers and, and then reflect on that back to the, to yourselves. So hopefully that's something that we will be able to do over the, the next couple of weeks. Um, so we, we will likely be back in touch with you in respect of that. Um, I'm going to bring in Stuart now. Thank you, Chair, um, and thank you for for the information you're providing. Um, Obviously, the whole uh, situation with regards to training, um, particularly for young people, is in a state of flux at the moment, not least of all because of the COVID pandemic that we're been through, coming through, and hopefully moving out the other side of at the moment. But it's also providing, and I think it's fair to say, uh, that you're taking opportunities to review uh, where we are in respect of all of that. Um, because COVID, I suppose, has shown different ways of training, different ways of teaching, uh, and different ways of, of working. Um, some of that will rebalance, I suppose, going into the future. But uh, can I ask, in respect of these specific traineeships, and you set out the, the minimum qualifications for those, what happens to those young people who still don't meet that minimum qualification level? What's the pathway expected for them? Um, I, I think that's important to, to, to uh, uh, be clear. You also said that in the first year, I think you were expecting some 4,500 young people, students, to go through some 38 occupational uh, training areas um, or train, trainee areas. What is your assessment of the availability for work for those young people coming out the other end of that? Thank you. 
Thank you very much. I mean, I think um, the point you made about how we support progression is, is probably the central area of our, our focus in terms of implementation. So I think there's there's two broad answers. So I think if they don't meet the basic grade requirements for the traineeship, then there's that flexible provision below it, skills for life and work, which will aim to get them to that level at which they can progress. And as I mentioned, delivery, that's something we really need to keep a close eye on to ensure that the curriculum and the pedagogy and the communications all align with that intent. I think there's also another cohort of learners who on face value do have um, the qualification levels for traineeship, but for whatever reason, um, maybe their, their learner profile in terms of their competence isn't quite up there yet. So we've introduced um, an introductory part of the traineeship that will help those young people um, get their skills up to a level that will allow them to study the level two qualifications contained. Um, you mentioned then about the availability of, of work. So it's actually a phased implementation. So the, the 4,000 that you mentioned in the first year, that's actually the, the second year. And I think that there is a worry about the availability of, of work for that cohort. Mm -hmm. um, I think when you look at overall employment figures at a national level, we have a drop of employment of around 3.5%. And concerningly, young people aged 16 to 24 have made up about two thirds of that group. So really punching well above their, their weight, unfortunately, in that statistic. And I think that's where there's a couple of points to make. Firstly, the broader outcome of the traineeship isn't that we're, we're not only preparing young people for that job and that sector at level two, we're also trying to get them uh, the broader educational outcomes so they can progress to where there are big skills gaps, levels three, four, and five and beyond. And then the other part of that is, is that um, as part of our COVID response, um, we've tried to maintain the supply of apprenticeship opportunities through a challenge fund, uh, new recruitment incentives, and a return from furlough. And I think those those interventions have had a really important job of, of moving from um, you know initial recruitment levels of around twenty five percent to now well over eighty five, well over seventy five percent rather, and furlough numbers moving from around four thousand apprentices, apprentices furloughed to around one thousand. So I think it's probably a mixture of trying to work with the business community to maintain the supply of opportunities for those young people. And then in parallel with that, making sure they've got the educational outcome so that we're not limiting their choices and they can, can carry on and progress to level three. Okay, thank you, Chair. Thanks, Stuart. And um, can we bring Sinead into the spotlight, please? Thank you very much um, for the presentation so far. And I suppose uh, uh, we would all concur with um, the fact that the vocational training landscape is extremely busy and it's often very hard to keep up with it. Um, but one of the areas that is um, extremely um, concerning to, to all of us is um, the, the, the uh, construction sector because we have learned uh, from, from uh, a lot of, of, of those in the industry that there's real shortages. There's shortages in trainees, there's shortages in apprenticeships uh, and all of that. How do you feel that um, the provisions uh, within uh, your sector is going to uh, drive down um, those vacancies and help support the industry going forward? Thanks very much, Shane. I, know I fully agree on the challenges that, that you mentioned. Um, there's probably a, a range of, of 
approaches we need to develop a bit further. Uh, first of all, is that construction sector um, occupations are a major feature within the work we're doing around traineeship. And then the work we're also doing within advanced technicals as well. We're hoping that can really improve that sense of a, of a you know, you're starting off a career within the sector rather than just the initial job role. Um, alongside that, um, we uh, launched what was called um, a challenge fund last year to try and identify barriers around how, what was limiting um, the supply to the apprenticeship system. And there's a range of approaches there, such as um, shared apprenticeships, improved brokerage, improved pre-entry support. So we'll be getting the feedback and evaluations from those different projects next month. And I think the next task, task is to think, right, what does this mean for the wider apprenticeship system and how can we improve supply? And I think there was some work within the construction area um, to try and diversify entry in, into that sector. And then finally, we had a really effective sectoral partnership, which is led by the CITB. I think we'd be keen to carry on working with them to ensure that we have the apprenticeships that align with the, the, the occupations within the sector, and then also try and understand what, what we can do within the public sector space and the all-age apprenticeship eligibility criteria to try and improve supply. So I think there's, there's a range of approaches that we need to carry on developing to try and supply skills into that sector. Yeah, I mean, some of the, the key infrastructure projects right across Northern Ireland at the minute, there's a dearth um, of, of tradespeople. You can't get them for love nor money. So, you know, big social housing projects, they can't get the houses painted, for example, uh, because there's no painters. They, this is a, a, a real industry problem that is holding back um, infrastructure development and economic development. So we really do need very agile interventions happening, um, you know, uh, in, uh, in lifetime. Uh, and the other, the other area, you know, how do we support the employers? You know, are we talking to the employers? Are they joined? Um, thinking about how these programs work, because I've spoken to some smaller construction employers, albeit, but they're saying, you know, that they can't afford maybe to take on apprenticeships whilst uh, the apprentices are going and, and doing two or three days, um, you know, in college, uh, and they can't afford that, uh, and they can't afford maybe to spend the money um, on um, that level of training. Is there any, perhaps, uh, you know, that the, the government, the department needs to look at how they better support employers that they uh, do on-the-job training and there's some kind of on-the-job assessment without the uh, uh, trainees um, actually having to, to, to leave their job and, and go back into work. Now, I just want to kind of throw that out because those were traditional pathways in the past uh, and there was, you know, there, there, there was a, a, a long line of, of people joining and it seems to have completely dried up in all areas you know i'm talking about painters there but it could be tilers it could be electricians it's it's right across the board that there is just a, a gap uh, in all of these construction um specialisms and professionals um and, and the cost as well i mean anybody that goes to do any work in their homes at the moment first of all they can't get anybody but i mean the cost has jumped uh, considerably uh, as well, so we really do. It's, a, it's an industry crisis that we need to face, and we need to take action quickly on it. 
the dog again. He lets me down every time. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I had mine in another room because I was afraid that there'd be another dog in the call and that would, um, would sort of start this chain reaction. Um, you know, I think some really important points there to give some optimism. I mean, one of our challenge fund projects is actually in the area of painting and direct decorating, and it's really focused on a cohort who in the past wouldn't have been able to access an apprenticeship because of the barriers they had. So there's a bit of intensive work up front to get them ready and try and support their transition into an apprenticeship. So we're really keen to see what that evaluation looks like and, and what it means for the wider sector. In addition as well, I think whenever you get employers working together, um, be it through improved brokerage or shared apprenticeships, you can get a big impact in terms of supply of skills. We ran a pilot a few years ago around civil engineering and before the pilot, there were no civil engineering apprenticeships in Northern Ireland and it moved very quickly to you know a number of the, the key employers all offering that as a steady opportunity year on year. And what they did was they worked together as a sector, which improved their impact in terms of um, the number of applicants they could get and the visibility of the opportunity and the quality. And I think then you also mentioned about the, the barriers employers face. You know, certainly whenever you take on an apprentice, there is um, maybe some challenges in particular in the first year, whenever um, their productive contribution um, isn't quite there with um, a regular employer, employee, and there's lots of training that is happening. So I think at the moment, we do have that new recruitment incentive of 3,000 pounds. So our hope is that that will help support the employer through that period and help their investment in the on-the-job learning. But I, I think that's a key area of development as we look forward around what sort of central support services we can provide to employers to try and reduce those barriers and really drive up the numbers of apprenticeships. Okay, thank you. Can we bring John O'Dowd into the spotlight, please? Thank you, Charlotte, and thank you for the presentation thus far. In terms of uh, some of the young people you're trying to reach, in terms of the, the, the GCSE levels they have reached, would indicate that many of them will come from hard-to-reach backgrounds, that they've had less than a positive experience of formal education and face challenges that some others may not. So I, I, know, I know at the start you said that you were happy to share your uh, publicity program around it, for want of a better term. But uh, I'd, be, I'd be keen to see that. But also in terms of this idea that there's a one-to-one -one plan for each of the students, how realistic is that in delivery terms uh, into a sector which, you know, the, the best plans in the world, once they're lifted off the page and put into a busy sector, can be very difficult to deliver and also to evaluate. So just how are you going to be able uh, to deliver that as well? So thank you. I'll ask Catherine to come in in a second, but I think that what you're talking about is really that we can have a principle and intent around this personalized approach, but that can be really difficult to deliver in the context of a, of a cohort and the funding models and everything else that goes alongside. And I think that's why um, you know the, the independent review of the work that we we're doing on entry level and level one pointed on the fact that that work needed a bit more time to complete so we could focus on the delivery structures to ensure they complemented the principles. So I think we've made some really good incremental improvements around the flexibility on that program, but there's certainly further to go. But that needs to be supported a bit more by the commercial model that we'll need to choose down the line. Um, Catherine, do you have anything further to add on that one? 
I think I've got it off now. It just seems to take a wee delay. Apologies. Um, our, our goal with Skills for Life and Work is that every student will have a personalised training plan because it's important that there, there are individual challenges, barriers, circumstances, needs. You know, there's a high proportion of students within this cohort who have um, disabilities and all those things need to be considered holistically in devising the appropriate training provision for them. It is a challenge, but it's an important one to make space in the programme because it's it's that sort of level of tailoring and personalisation and really understanding each student is what will help them to succeed and to make their way through the programme. Um, I appreciate that at first thought it may feel like that is unachievable, but I think success in the programme is unachievable without that. You know, it, it requires that level of of tailoring and really understanding each student's requirements. And in engagements we've had with private private training providers and with our colleagues in FE, I think that understanding of, of each student is there. That's something that they, they do already, no matter how formalized it is, and it's something they're very, very good at. You know, a range of our, our private training providers really pride themselves on knowing every every one of the people that come through their doors and where their strengths are and what they need help with. And, and we're, we're lucky to be able to work with them on that basis. Um, I think it is an important element of of the plan going forward. I raise it just on that basis that it is something that will need to be monitored. monitored. Uh, and assess as, as you go forward because with the best will in the world any system particularly our education system further higher education system or higher education sorry further education system it can be overwhelmed and the best intentions in the world can go out the window very very quickly so i think it's an important element to me uh, i don't know if you've heard the, the previous presentation but i, I mentioned in that that uh educational underachievement is mad is measured by five good GCSEs, A star to C, English and Maths. And we're in a danger then of telling our young people that if they don't achieve that, they've failed. So what I welcome about this is that this is another part of the journey for young people, that there's another step forward that they can take in terms of, okay, you haven't achieved this mark, but there's achievements still to be made. And, and you can go out and, and some of the, the courses and the pathways you're outlining are can be very uh, rewarding, both financially and in terms of, of achievement, in terms of your work. Though, so uh, it's an interesting program, and uh, we have to, uh, the chair mentioned about the current training provisions. We're waiting on more information coming back from them, but it, it is an interesting uh, program. These are delivering. So, thank you. Thank you, John, and, and thanks um, to the officials for the briefing. It has been really informative for us, and as I say, we will be, be keen to, to keep um, engaging with you as things move forward over the next few weeks. So um, thanks for being with us this morning. Thank you. Peter, do you want to go through what our Chair, just, um, I think a couple of members um, have mentioned the, the campaign, and I think it would be really useful for members to see that. Um, the, the discussion was very positive, um, but I, I think that, the, what is it they say, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Um, and it would also help if members can uh, see that to be able to push it out, because mm -hmm. um, obviously members have those networks and contacts. Um, and also there was 
discussion on some projects and pilots that are still being evaluated and we're hopeful to get that next month so if members are content we we put in a request for that now yep um, so it's already on the record okay and just to advise members that we do have an informal meeting with the fe college's next. principals next thursday mm -hmm. um to discuss the the youth training uh, reforms and that we have already written to employers and student unions and training providers to seek their mm -hmm. views Chair, we have SIA at the end of the month as well, and that sort of completes the picture on the, the landscape um, that underpins all this, that, that, that's come up a lot with the, the crowding and so on, and I think that'll be quite interesting. The, the interim chief executive has some interesting ideas. Okay, so members happy enough to, to move on? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Great, so we'll move on then to item number six, which is matters arising. Um, then 6.1, page 80 of your pack, there's a copy of our response to the Finance Committee in relation to its call for contributions to the Independent Fiscal Council. Peter, has this already been yeah, it, A draft issued? has gone purely because um, they had a deadline and it did go with Dear Steve on it, not Dear Richard. Um, apologies for that, that is overwritten in the pack. Um, the, the committee couldn't say a huge amount yeah. because it hasn't been discussed. So essentially the, the, the real focus is value for money and living up to the terms of reference and um, you know what it says it will do on the tin. Um, just to remind members, we, we were going to pursue some actions around the, um, the Fiscal Council and Commission as a, a committee, but stepped back, agreed to step back when uh, the Finance Committee said that they were going to sort of take forward this work. Yeah. So that's kind of curtailed the discussion we might have had. So the, the response... Um, being being brutally honest isn't very helpful and doesn't say an awful lot, but does focus very much on that value for money, doing what it says in the tin. The only thing I was going to say to it was in relation to the independence bit, because I think, broadly speaking, people are supportive of it being yes. in fully independent, so uh, that was the only thing. And the only other bit was I didn't <coughs> know what you were referring to in relation to the establishment of the office of NIPSO. That goes back to um, the 2011-16 mandate. Some members will recall that went to the OFM committee. It was, a, it was one of our very few pieces of, of statutory committee legislation. I, I think there was a very, very distinct process for that. Uh, it was very clear what would be done, how it would be done, and, and that level of detail simply isn't available yet. Um, that's the other sort of point to make, is that the response highlights the fact that you know, some of these are ideas being thrown out. There, there isn't really detail to follow on. So that NIPSO process is already there and would actually answer a lot of the queries that are asked about answering to the assembly, the, the, the kind of um, report mechanisms there would be. That, that work, if you like, has already been done. So that's, that's where the reference to NIPSO is. Um, unfortunately, Mr Nesbitt's not here, but he will remember that from the OFM committee. And I think some of the members of the Finance Committee were also on that. It was really just to give a reference point um, because there is that template for looking at someone who potentially could be an officer of the Assembly, like the NIPSO, like the CNAG, uh, or the Attorney General, or whatever. Um, and it's, it's just you know, that reinforcement of not having to reinvent the wheel. Okay. Okay, so are members content just to reflect we'll the independence um, in the, the response? 
Okay, so moving on then to 6.2, at page 83, there is a copy of an email issued to members on the 4th of June by the clerk regarding the um, British government's funding applications. Um, obviously, we know the levelling up funding and the community renewal fund are now open for bids. Um, we have shared our views previously in relation to, to that matter. So um, is there anything you want to add? I to think, Chair, it, it is again worthwhile putting on record our, uh, the fact that we are seriously concerned about the way in which these funds have both been announced, the way in which these funds uh, are being administered, uh, particularly uh, with little or no reference to Northern Ireland whatsoever. Um, and um, Although many of us will have our own views on panels of the great and the good in Northern Ireland dishing out European money and other funding, uh, nevertheless, uh, I think there's a very strong principle around that of local input into how funds are distributed. Uh, to put us in competition with the other parts of the United Kingdom and to do that all centrally from London is uh, unbelievably uh, difficult for us and indeed uh, to, to even include for example the Northern Ireland Executive as a potential applicant for this funding is a real denigration uh, in terms of where we have been and as a damning indictment of, of, of Brexit. Yeah, who have we corresponded with on this already? So we, we've uh, corresponded at cabinet level, um, executive office, the economy minister and the finance minister all of whom shared, well, obviously not the, the cabinet level. <laughs> um, we, we, we got a response that didn't really tell us what we needed to know. Um, I know the House of Lords committees are working on this one, as are um, counterparts in Scotland, Wales and yes. Scotland, but they're very much in the same position as us, that this has been entirely lifted away from, from the mechanisms we're used to. You know, even though money came from Brussels, it came with local decision making. Yes, you know you could apply, and there, there there was very clear criteria. There were no barriers. There wasn't a quota or anything like that. So, I, I think that's the frustration: is that the the executive has responded by saying it shares those concerns and has communicated those um, back up to to, to cabinet level. Um, it's where where we kind of go from there, chair. Um, chair, chair. Sorry, can I come in? Yep, go ahead, Sinead. Yeah, um, I mean, I share the concerns just uh, expressed by Stuart there. I, I don't think um, we'll be um, a winner in this um, competition that has now uh, been put forward for us to engage in. Um, we all know in relation to European funding, Northern Ireland did extremely well. Um, uh, and um, this seems to be nearly levelled against us. So it's very, very important that we make very strong repre uh, representations um, against this level of, uh, of governance. Um, and it should be you know, devolved into the regions as well. There should be some kind of back into the devolved regions um, of the UK. Uh, and it's extremely concerning that this is, this is um, um, well, it's not, it's not like, I'm, I'm not shocked with it. 
at all, but it is concerning for us in Northern Ireland because we are going to be disadvantaged here. But um, it's another aspect of how uh, the UK Treasury and the UK government have really dismissed um, the importance of this level of funding that, that um, Northern Ireland has traditionally had a very positive a relationship with um, in the decades previous to this. So um, I think we need to make very strong representation from this committee as well. Yeah, okay. Um, and I think as Peter has reflected, we have corresponded with cabinet level ministers. We have corresponded with the executive. Um, and to, to pick up on that point, I think the, the only further thing that we can do is to correspond with the, the British Prime Minister, um, reflect and perhaps we can share the responses that we've had from elsewhere um, and highlight that we believe that this um, this process undermines devolution um, and isn't the way that we think that funding should be administered. Yeah, I think, Chair, one other thing we need to do is, while, we can, we're, while we're right to give off about it, what we also need to do now going forward is to monitor very closely the outcome of these current requests for bids to see how, uh, that, how, the, how we compare with where we were in the past, how we're comparing with the other regions in the UK for which we're com competing for these funds. And also, I think it's vitally important that there's a great deal of openness and transparency about the application process. Who is applying? Why are they getting? And how are, how are the funds actually being allocated? Chair, it might be worth reflecting too on the fact that the the the, um, the posts about the, the funds opening is, is under the auspices of the NIO. We did ask before uh, about potentially someone coming in mm -hmm. from yeah. the NIO to explain just what the involvement is, what is it they're doing, how are they how are they making all this work, and I think it might just be worth doing that more okay. specifically and directly just to understand the mechanism. I understand that the turnaround times are really short. They are. They're, they're, and there's potential requirements for endorsements and so on as yeah. well. So, yeah. Some of it is closing this week or next yeah. week. The other thing too is when you go onto the NIO uh, website, .gov website, actually, and click on the link, it takes you through to a UK link. It, it, they're not even, not none of this is even actually being processed in Northern Ireland at all. It's, they're just acting as an intermediary. Okay, so members content to seek a briefing then from the NIO? Yep. Okay. okay, so moving on then to 6.3, at page 85 of our packs, there's a copy of the trade and investment element of the 10X economic plan. Obviously, we now know there's a suite of papers which the Minister intends to publish under the 10X plan, um, and the committee will obviously want to give more detailed consideration to this as part of its overall um, scrutiny. So the clerk is preparing a paper on all the elements of the strategy being brought forward by the department and how they are all going to link together. Um, and I think, um, Peter, it might be worth us seeking some views. We, we haven't had them in, in a wee while in respect of our business representatives around how um, the protocol is impacting them and how um, they see it going forward. Um, and, you know, it is reflected in, in this paper that, you know, the, the, the dual access and, and also um, the, the resolution of some of the issues. So I think it would be useful if we could do that. Sure, we'll go ahead and put out a, a round robin. Okay, so moving on then to um, page 98, there's correspondence from the Committee for Infrastructure regarding support for the Boston coach industry. Um, and just to highlight, the Infrastructure Committee had an informal meeting 
with the Boston Coach sector and agreed to write to the Economy Minister highlighting their concerns and that rolling support should be provided to assist this sector's recovery. So basically this is for members to note at this stage and once we get the response then from the Minister we, we can consider that further. Are members happy enough with that? Yeah, Chair, can I come in on an associated point? Yes, go ahead, John. I've seen in the media this morning, and I've also been lobbied by a number of local taxi depots, and it goes back to the recruitment of, of staff and taxi drivers uh, who are unable to fulfil contracts because they just can't get the staff anymore. Uh, could we write to the appropriate committee, uh, the infrastructure committee, or whoever it may be, uh, and ask us in terms of what measures can or could be put in place to assist the taxi industry in terms of recruitment? Mm -hmm. or, or is there any uh, interrogation of the reasons why taxi firms can't recruit uh, drivers in the numbers that's required to complete uh, the contracts they have? Okay. Chair, what we do is we write to the, the infra committee, Infrastructure Committee and ask them if, if they can pursue those issues. They'll have more of an idea of the, the people to get to quickly for that. Yep, okay. So moving on then to uh, 6.5, page 100. There's correspondence from the Finance Committee regarding the monthly forecast outturn data for March 2021. Members of that committee noted that the monthly outturn data so shows some very significant end-of-year surges in respect of both capital and resources. The Finance Committee highlights that capital end-of-year surges may be linked to departments settling up with contractors. They advise that such a practice is at odds with Department of Finance guidance. Um, and risk substantial capital underspends. So members are content that we write to the department and seek some clarity around that. Okay. So moving on then, page 157, there's correspondence from the Assembly's EU Affairs Manager regarding the opening of the Competition and Market Authority's consultation on its UK internal market functions. Um, we had that correspondence last week at, um, at the meeting. So the consultation seeks views on the draft guidance for the operation of the new office for the internal market. Its main functions will be monitoring and reporting on the operation of the UK internal market and providing reports on specific regulatory provisions, including proposals regarding such provisions upon the request of the British government, the Scottish government, the Welsh government or the executive. So the consultation closes on the 23rd of July. So um, if members are content that we would write to the department to ask what input it is having to that consultation. Thank you. Okay. Um, so then page 159 of our packs, there's correspondence from the EU Affairs Manager um, regarding the recognition of the Professional Qualifications Bill. The British government introduced the Professional Qualifications Bill on the 12th of May to set out the new British framework for recognition of professional qualifications and experience from overseas by professions. Um, that Professional Qualification Bill consists of 19 clauses and the government will seek legislative consent for clauses 1 to 10. And obviously we are aware of issues in relation to recognition of professional qualifications. We've had some correspondence um, of in that respect. So this is to note for members at this point, I assume we, we will get, get further yeah, information. The, the department will write uh, in terms of how they want to proceed on this. Because there's such a big chunk of it, pretty much more than half, is, is uh, relevant for us. Um, you know, we'd expect a fairly significant LCM on that. Okay. 
Moving on then to page 160, there's a response from the Department of Communities regarding St John's Ambulance and their delay in submitting their annual accounts to Companies House. DFC advises that neither they nor the Charity Commission have any evidence at present to indicate that late filing with Companies House during the pandemic is a widespread problem for charitable companies. Therefore, an approach by the Department to the Companies House does not seem to be appropriate at this time. The um, DFC advises that the matter seems to have been resolved as Companies House records currently indicate that St John's Ambulance accounts are up to date with no indication of any infringement. So are our members content that we would forward that response on to St John's Ambulance? Thank you. 6.9 then, page 162, there is a response from the Students' Union of Ireland, Scotland and Wales to recent correspondence from the clerk following the committee's engagement um, with NUS, USA and the student unions. Um, and Peter's going to speak to this and obviously we asked for it to be brought forward from last week. Uh, we, we had some consideration of it, but it was quite brief. Just, we had very little time, Chair. It's, it's really just to, to bring the matter back to members. You, you can see from what's in the pack there that there's, there's fairly extensive engagement goes on. And Chair, what, what I might suggest, rather than me rehearsing all that, because members have seen it now in the pack a couple of times, is to convey the information, reflect the information to the Minister mm -hmm. uh, and indicate that this is, is what's going on in other jurisdictions and, and therefore a precedent, a standard has been set. Yeah. Um, and with a new Minister coming in, it might be an opportune, an opportune time to raise that again as an issue. Think that would be appropriate, and just I suppose to say at that point, Peter. Obviously, you know, um, appointment processes and everything have to take yes, place. Sorry, but it would be useful to um, seek the new minister once he would be in post to come and uh, talk to committee as soon as is convenient. Sure. What we would try and do is is get a a, a briefing for the new minister to set out their um, priorities, but also look at potentially setting up an informal meeting too, so that more general discussion can take place. Yeah. Um, where, where members have more freedom um, to raise the issues that they want to. Okay, um, 6.10 then at page 166, there's a written brief in Patenburg from Ulster University regarding plans for semester one of the incoming academic year. Ulster University states that public health indications are encouraging and we can, with increasing confidence, begin to look to a fuller resumption of normal on-campus operations. Ulster University is also in the final stages of building the enhanced Belfast campus and looks forward to welcoming its staff and students to the new campus from September. Um, Obviously, further in higher education, we'll be making decisions around these issues over the next few weeks. The committee is planning to meet with colleges informally next week, and we've already um, set out that we believe that both further and higher education institutions and indeed the, the department very much need to be looking at all sort of contingency planning in, in that respect as well. Um, and I suppose it wouldn't do you any harm, Peter, to seek some... Um, uh, response from the department in respect of contingency planning um, and the issues that students have been highlighting to us, for example, around rental contracts. Is there any guidance or anything being put out either through the department itself or through the universities to students about those types of issues? Perfect, Chair. We'll, we'll follow up on that. Okay. 
Um, 6.11 then, correspondence from the Communities Committee providing a copy of a raised briefing on the High Street Task Force. The paper included an overview of the High Street renewal, renewal initiatives in other parts of uh, the UK and a consideration of key issues for here. So it's obviously just to note at this point to consider in the context of our concurrent briefing next week. Right, members, moving on then to item number seven, which is the Parental Bereavement Leave and Pay Bill. So there is a clerk's memo at page 170 of your pack. There is a clerk's memo from the Departmental Briefing on the 19th of May at page 172. There is a motion to extend the committee stage at page 178. A provisional timetable for the bill at page 179. The bill is introduced at page 181 and the bill's explanatory and financial memorandum at page 205. Then at page 37 of table papers, there is a response from the department to the committee's request for a copy of the statistics or figures referenced by the department in considering miscarriage within the scope of the bill. And the department's response states that there is a distinction in law between miscarriages and stillbirths. If a baby dies before 24 weeks, it's a miscarriage, whilst a stillbirth occurs after 24 weeks. The Department of Health, as the policyholder for the definitions of stillbirth and miscarriage, would be responsible for redefining or amending the statutory recognised periods for both. The last change, which was from 28 weeks to 24 weeks, was made in 1992. Currently, the definition of a stillbirth is the basis for the entitlement to certain benefits and leave allowances. For example, for those who have suffered a stillbirth qualify for maternity leave and pay, whilst those who have suffered a miscarriage do not. So just remind members, there was some discussion during the pre-introductory briefing with officials around whether the Minister intended to legislate for leave to be taken within 56 weeks or 56 days. The early version of the bill had referenced 56 days. Um, and just to, to advise members that the version of the bill provided at page 181 of the pack, at paragraph 6, page 186 of your packs, the memorandum both refer to leave being taken within 56 days of the death of the child. The clerk has sought clarity from the department who provided the following explanation by email. The committee should note that whilst the text of the bill says at, 50, at least 56 days, it is the minister's intention to set this period of time at 56 weeks following the death of a child. This extension, which is beyond the minimum that the bill requires the department to make provisions for, will be given effect through the subordinate legislation package which will follow on from the introduction of the bereavement, sorry, the parental bereavement leave and pay bill. The members will obviously have the opportunity to return to both of these issues in more detail as part of the consideration of the bill once the committee stage has formally commenced. Um, and so, just to ask members to or to seek agreement from the members to ask the department for a formal written response to clarify the wording of at least 56 days that is contained within the bill. So the bill was introduced on the 1st of June. It is passing to second stage for debate next Monday, the 14th of June. And if the bill passes, it will then be referred to the committee on the 15th of June. The committee has 30 working days to take evidence, consider and report its opinion on a bill. The 30-day period for the parental bereavement leave bill ends on Monday, the 20th of September. 
and this accounts for summer recess which begins on the 10th of July and ends on the 5th of September. So it's advice that the committee would seek extension to the committee stage and a motion requesting this must be considered in plenary before the end of the 30-day period. Given the limited time before summer recess, the motion to extend committee stage is being considered at today's meeting with an expected date for debate in plenary before summer recess begins. So just to advise members that the draft timeline included outlines an extension of the committee stage to the 15th of November. However, it would be hoped that the committee would be able to report on the bill before that date. Yes. So if members are content with the draft timeline and with the uh, motion to seek... Um, oh, is Christopher wanting to come in? Yeah, yeah. Go yeah, ahead, Christopher. So there's a few things there. Firstly, um, I think the, the move from, in, in terms of definitions, from 28 to 24 weeks uh, came about as a consequence of advances in science. And science is obviously going to continue advancing in terms of development and um, the health of unborn children. So I think that's certainly an important area that we examine. And then there's obviously clarity required on the 56 day, 56 week um, sort of issues that arise there. From my perspective, I think it would be really, really important, and I hope that we, uh, I hope that we can get to it. I think it would be really, really important that we as a committee speak with one voice on this particular issue. Um, but secondly, in terms of trying to get this legislation progressed, and I'm sure um, I know that there are, I haven't, I've got, yes, I always keep it with me, I've got my copy of standing orders here. Um, there are rules governing sort of committee processes and what have you, but in terms of our deliberations and our discussions, it really is no skin off my nose if we have additional meetings during um, the recess to have those conversations with interested parties because I actually would like us to be progressing this much quicker than the middle of November. Okay, so P Peter is going to speak to that. Chair, really the, the 15th is, if you like, a bit of an arbitrary thing. It just means that we're yeah. secure and completing. Um, we're very acutely aware that the department wants uh, completion prior to Christmas so that they can get royal assent before the end of the year, which then allows them to start making the subordinate legislation. So we, we actually have a process ready to roll out. Uh, we're finalising a, a survey and call for evidence that as soon as we get the bill uh, referred to the committee, we can send out. So that will all start working over the summer. When Summer will actually be really helpful for us because it means we can do a lot of the... Um, a lot of the prep work then when it doesn't actually count towards our time total. Mm -hmm. um, so that when we come back in September, we'll, we'll be able to get right into the evidence sessions, the clause by clause, looking at amendments and so on. So my anticipation is that we can finish well before the mid-November. That's just a safety zone in case we... I suppose in case other issues come up that we hadn't anticipated. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I would not intend we get anywhere near that, if possible just to give that length of, of, of time for the department to complete and get that key regulation work out. It's maybe just worth reflecting that the, the 56 days, 56 weeks thing, and members may even recall it from some of the discussions last night at the licensing bill. The 56 days is to provide a floor so that if you, if you just put in 56 in the face of the bill, 
that would be very difficult to change, expand, modify. That's why it goes into regulations. The 56 days is providing that absolute minimum so that an employer can't say, well, you, you know, it says up to 56 weeks, but, you know, I need you to do it now and this week. So the at least 56 days provide that floor and then the regulations will allow 56 weeks initially, but that is then allowed to be flexible because it's through regulation rather than having to re-amend the bill in the first place. That'll become a lot more apparent when we go through this and have the briefings with officials. Um, in terms of the, the definitions as well, um, I, I suspect we're going to get a, need to get a lot of legal advice around um, what we can do. This is where it becomes more complex because there's such a health anchor in this as well. And it's, it's and I think just going as say, far as we can. We aren't seeking to redefine the definition of stillbirth. The inclusion would be of leave for those who suffer miscarriage. So it's, there's no redefinition that we are suggesting in any way, shape or form here. It is providing additional leave for those who are in that situation. Mm -hmm. Chair, what I'm very conscious of is that... Um, I suppose we're most familiar with what the public sector offers in terms of, of leave and support and so on. Um, there are no real supports in the private sector other than the bare minimum that law provides. So it is an opportunity to put those safeguards in place for people who, who really don't have anywhere else to look for support. Mm -hmm. um, I think as we go through and we start talking to some of the sectors um, where that kind of support isn't written into their terms and conditions, members may be quite shocked as to what exactly practice is. So this is an opportunity to provide that floor uh, against them, which you can build going forward. Thank you. No, that's, that's fair enough. As long as it's understood that, you know, 15th of November is the absolute latest yeah. uh, in this process. And secondly, I think it would be really, uh, actually really important. And I don't know, I'm sure there are, there are um, charities and uh, voluntary organisations who work with people uh, that have went through this. I think it'd be really important for us as a committee to hear testimony from people who haven't been given the protections that the public sector has been given and their lived experience, because I think that would underscore to everyone in the committee and in the public just why this initiative um, is so important and why it's important that we get this onto the statute book. Yeah. And I, I completely concur with um, your view, Christopher. This is something we want to see progressed as quickly as we can do it, but that we do want to give it the consideration that it, it needs. Uh, John O'Dowd is looking to come in for a, a comment as well. Well, uh, the clerk has just clarified the, the need that we don't need to sit over the summer. Uh, and the point I was going to make was just in relation to the speaker's letter last week, that there's a huge amount of uh, staff leave has built up over this last year uh, and we should do everything to try and avoid. I know the general public don't care if politicians get a break or not, which is fair enough, but certainly uh, the staff and the assembly deserve to get that break. But I think the clerk has now clarified that we may not have to sit over the summer to allow this bill to be brought forward as soon as possible. Chair, yeah, the, 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 what, we're, what we're trying to do over the summer recess is all of our process, so our call for evidence our planning around stakeholder events. Things are, are, are kind of innovating at the minute and a lot of bills are now um, part of committee stage is having larger scale stakeholder events that we would never have complicated or contemplated before. Also picking up on some of the, the, the groups and people that Mr. Stafford had talked about, we, we need to think of ways to do that um, that, that are less intimidating than uh, a committee session. We're looking at 
Other committees have now started to do that, and it's within the rules. Um, so we're looking at how we can be sensitive to people who have stories to tell, but would be intimidated by having to do that in, in a committee situation in yeah. a formal briefing. So uh, we're, we're gathering sort of information on that, but we'll have done it a lot over the summer, and that'll, that'll allow us to be ready to hit the ground running for, if you like, those sort of final stages uh, in September. Okay. Okay, Peter, I'm conscious... Oh, sorry, I need to seek agreement on the following motion, so that in accordance with Standing Order 33-4, the period referred to in Standing Order 33-2 be extended to the 15th of November 2021 in relation to the committee stage of the parental bereavement leave and pay bill NIA bill 22-17-22. So are members content with that? Great. Okay, thank, thank you. you Chair. So Peter, I'm conscious that it's one o'clock. Do we want to continue? What do you want us to do? What we can do, Chair, is the eight is an SL1, so it's not... Um, Necessarily, if we could move to nine, yep, sure. do the SR, please. Okay, so item number nine, SR 2021-140, the Insolvency Amendment 2016 Act, Consequential Amendments and Revocation Order, Northern Ireland 2021. There's a clerk's memo at page 223, and the SR is at page 225. The purpose of this order is to revoke a piece of subordinate legislation made in connection with deeds of arrangement. Additionally, it will amend provisions in other subordinate legislation which refer to deeds of arrangement in consequence of the repeal by Article 11.1 of the Act of Chapter 1 of Part 8 of the Insolvency NI Order 1989, the Insolvency Order, order which provided for deeds of arrangement. The mem members considered the SL1 at our meeting on the 19th of May and there have been no changes to policy content since then. The statutory rule is subject to negative resolution procedure. It came into operation yesterday. Um, and just to remind members that the examiner statutory rules has not yet reported on this rule, so members will be agreeing to the legislation subject to the examiner if statutory rules report. You're just clarifying. It says yesterday, 30th of June. No, that should that that's um, that's a misprint. It okay. should be what was yesterday. Eight. Ninth? Ninth. 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 Yeah. Okay, just to just clarify that for me. Okay, so just um, if members are content with the SR to put the question that the Committee for the Economy has considered SR 2021-140, the Insolvency Amendment 2016 Act, Consequential Amendments and Revocation Order, Northern Ireland 2021, and has no objection to the rule subject to the Examiner of Statutory Rules report. Peter, where do you want us to go to next? Okay, so Chair, if we get agreement to do 8 and 10 via correspondence and we move to AOB, Chair? Okay, so are members content that we would do correspondence and either bring 8 back or... We'll probably bring it back We'll bring week. 8 back next week and do correspondence by correspondence? Yeah. Yes. So there's just a couple of items of any other business. Um, one which Peter had circulated um, yesterday evening um, and it was just in relation to the ESF funding um, and the new process that um, the department is seeking that um, those who already have ESF projects would have to reapply. So it's just to go back to the department with the questions that were highlighted in that email and seek some clarifications yes. in, in that regard. So members are content to do that. And then the, the Deputy Chair, um, Sinead, has indicated that she wishes to highlight the issue of difficulties faced by 
local aviation manufacturing sector following on from the redundancies yeah. announced last week um, and has suggested that we get a briefing from sectoral representatives. So, Sinead, you might want to speak to that. No, um, it's fine. I, I mean, everybody is aware of the Thompson um, announcement. So I just think that the aerospace uh, industry is going to be the very last um, to come back. So I think we should hear from the representatives of the industry itself. OK, thank you. Chair, uh, sure, that will include the unions. Yeah. yeah. Chair, we can set yeah. that up. I think um, all the relevant companies are probably invest clients as well, so we can mm. get them to sort of facilitate that. Okay. Okay, members, thank you for that. Just to move on. Chair, another issue as well. Oh, sorry, Sinead, go ahead. I think as well as the aerospace industry, um, the travel industry also has uh, severe issues, and I think we've seen that this week when Portugal went in from uh, green to, to amber and how it has really thrown uh, the industry into flux. Um, and I think we should hear from representatives from the, the, the bodies as well. So uh, if, if members within the committee were happy enough to do that, that would be great as well. Yeah, I, and I agree with that. And it's something obviously the committee has raised on a number of occasions is the support to the, the travel industry. And um, it doesn't seem like it's going to be in a position to be recovering this summer. So I think it is important that we continue to advocate for that additional funding. Yes, um, Chair. In addition to that, it, 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 by way of an answer that I received, written answer which I received, the, the executive office will still not made the payments to, to travel tra agents. That, I think, Chair, there was, there was some media around that and representatives were reflecting on that this yes. week. So it's clearly still an issue. Can we seek some clarification around that? We can do. Right. Is that everything then? Chair, can we just bring Sinead back up in? Because no. I think she's not down there. Chair, there was, there was another me? one. Go ahead, Sinead. Yeah. Uh, the final piece um, is uh, I've had correspondence um, this week from from a few manufacturers in relation to uh, the cost of coverage, uh, particularly from those bringing goods in from China. And um, so, manufacturing companies, uh, freight, uh, logistics, etc., etc., are experiencing unprecedented levels of costs uh, bringing freight from uh, China into Northern Ireland and also from bringing freight from China into the US. So, for example, um, one company, the actual cost uh, to bring freight in from China to Northern Ireland was $2,000 in November 19, and that has now, today's value of that, has risen to $15,000. Um, and that's from China to Northern Ireland. Now, this is really, really affecting our manufacturing industry and it's also obviously going to affect cost and prices. And I think that we need, I, I think it's a, a global market that it won't be easily resolved, but I think it is something that we really need to um, get a briefing on and get a handle on and exactly what is happening uh, within the, 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 uh, the, the industry itself, uh, because it, it will have a significant impact uh, for a large number of our companies here in Northern Ireland. Um, if members are content, we would seek to set up an informal meeting with Manufacturing NI to get yeah. some um, information around that. Probably the freight reps uh, as well, Chair. Yeah, I think freight reps um, as well would be helpful. Yeah. Yeah, Chair, that would be very helpful. It's not only the cost of, of transportation, but there's a serious worldwide materials shortage as well. And I think that's an issue which needs to be addressed because lots of places in Northern Ireland that 
put together things. Um, I, I, I know recently speaking to a, a, a supplier of garden sheds, for example, that there's, an act, there's a shortage of wood available, uh, of mm -hmm. the appropriate timber. It's not, it's not produced here in Northern Ireland, it's imported. Um, and it's nothing to do with Brexit or, or that, or even supply lines. It's actually the raw material difficulties yeah. that there are out there at the moment as well. I think a lot of it is getting confused around um, as if it's a Brexit um, issue. It yeah, isn't. It's not. Uh, it isn't at all. And a lot of it, you know, uh, as you say, garden furniture, etc., etc., you just can't get it. Um, I thought it might have been because of the Suez Canal, you know, the, the, the uh, traffic jam there. But it's much greater than that, and we need to get an understanding of just what the impacts are going to be going forward. And when does the, the, the freight industry think that it's going to be resolved? Um, I think a lot of bulk buying has happened as a result of the pandemic as well, or big, big uh, item uh, issues that is impacting on it. Uh, also, so we just need to get a handle uh, as a committee on what is actually happening. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, we will we will do that then. So just moving on then to item number twelve, which is the date, time, and place of the next meeting, and it's next Wednesday morning in room thirty. And just to remind members that there will also be um, the meeting with the executive office committee next Wednesday afternoon, and that we have our committee micro-inquiry event on the High Street Stimulus Voucher Scheme and 10X Economy Innovation Paper tomorrow. And the member feedback session of that is via Zoom from 11 to 12. And the, the Zoom link was sent out yesterday, so members will have that, but we can resend again tomorrow morning, just so it's top of your pile of emails. Okay, thank you. Thank you. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern